Dogs of Warcry is a new podcast from the Mortal Realms, focusing on Warcry, a fast-paced, cinematic skirmish game by Games Workshop. Join us for discussions on gameplay, rules, lore, painting, terrain building, campaigns, and events. In Episode 4, we indulge in the aesthetic aspects of Warcry, the environments we can create, and the models we place upon them. Welcome to the Warband. My name is Eric, or Stone Monk Gamer, and answering the call with me this week is our very own Envoy of Madness, Josh. Hello. And our Sergeant of the Squig Squad, Pavend. Reporting for duty. <laughs> and Master <laughs> of the Murder Boys, Paul. Well, hello. How are you guys doing tonight? Great. Wonderful. <laughs> Try not to cross talk. <laughs> They're shy. They're shy. Uh, all right. This episode um, is going to be heavily weighted towards the aesthetic side of the hobby, but before we get into that, well, let's take a minute to celebrate what we've gotten done since last time we spoke. Um, Paven, how's your hobby been? My hobby has been pretty good. I um, I think I hadn't quite finished the Loon Shrine uh, last time we talked, and I believe I fit. Uh, so I fin- I know I know I finished it now. Um, so that felt good to get that, that project out of the way. I'm now, I picked up the, um, as a reward for finishing my loon shrine, I headed over to the Warhammer store and picked up the defiled ruins box. Cause I've been eyeing that since it came out and I've started to work on that. And, um, I got pretty, I've gotten pretty, I've gotten a few pieces painted, but now I'm starting to second guess myself. So I'm at the stage of like retrying colors um so maybe maybe eric me and you can talk after the show and you can give me some help um <laughs> i don't quite don't quite have it yeah uh, but i'm excited to continue to work on that project and build up a Warcry a display board for my Warcry band which uh is due this week as part of our Warcry league um, well <laughs> that was a funny story there i was uh i was thinking about picking up something for for the I, I just like to collect things that go with my warbands or my armies or that sort of thing. So I was going to pick one up and, and, and I paved you asked like, what is that for? I was like, I figured I put it like with my display of my warband. He's like, you're putting them on a display board. <laughs> I apologize if I, if I made you feel obligated in any way. Yeah. To I was like, I was feeling good about like my warband and how it was painted. But then I didn't know, like we were going to that next level and I was like, Oh no, I got nothing. Boy, and so I'm pressure's curious, on. Sense. And then I remember I do have my loon shrine, so I can just put that on there. So yep, yep. So uh, yeah, it's it's just it's an informal escalation uh, and challenge of each other's uh, hobby <laughs> in a competition form. <laughs> in a form competition form, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Paul, what have you been doing since the last time you were on? Well, I've had a little bit more time than the rest of you to work on stuff, so. Um, I converted up Allegiance of Nagash Warband for my friend Alan. He wanted to play them. Uh, so I got a couple of the Underworld's Skeleton Warbands and then chopped them up and added in the Revenants torsos and heads and made a really just kind of odd Legions of Nagash Warband because I can't put anything together as it's intended. <laughs> They're uh, cool, though. Cool. Oh, thank you. 
Um, I do like them, and my friend Alan likes them, so that's that's you know the goal there. Um, I've been working on a little bit more terrain, so I built an aqueduct test piece for my uh, larger terrain set that I have. So I learned some lessons. I will implement the next time I build it. And then I also bought a second box of Corpus Cabal and literally could not assemble them as intended. So all of them got cut up, chopped up, and turned around. <laughs> <laughs> so Gotta do it. Yep. You're, you are compelled. I am. Very, <laughs> very cool. Josh, what have you been working on? I've uh, been working on painting up the Cypher Lords. Uh, so I did get a test color scheme put together, and it I think it's great. I'm going to run with it, and I uh, got some positive feedback and suggestions from people. So now i am got got some additional fox ears sculpted on three more models, which I'll try and get painted up before Thursday. So at least I'll have a warband of four because I can't get them all done in time. But <laughs> but I'm really happy with how the color scheme turned out and, and the fox ears working out. So I'll... I'm happy I can continue to work on that project and, and get them all painted up before the next league starts it for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm, I am so close to having my, um, untamed beast finished. I think I've just counted up about 13 models are almost done. Um, and I've got another 11 that are nowhere near done. Uh, obviously <laughs> for our, um, for our end of campaign painting competition or cool army competition, more, more like more, uh, more likely, um, uh, we were doing up to a thousand points. So to kind of encourage people to get their warbands painted, uh, but also kind of not make it so that somebody's putting down too many. Um, and yeah, so that's, and that's been a lot of what I've been uh, putting together for my hobby. Otherwise it's been, uh, planning, um, I guess I'm going to go ahead and announce this here on the 16th of November at in Madison um, at Misty Mountain Games. We're going to be playing um, a 16. We're trying to get a 16-player narrative event um, that's going to run for just the one day on Saturday. And so I've been working on. Um, I've had ideas for a while, but trying to put them down into a pack get them ready to kind of push out so that everybody can start preparing for it, even though it's just a few weeks away. Um, and uh, hopefully there's enough people with war bands that they've been playing with. It would be fun to just get together for a day and, and play through a, an era event. So I've been working on that. Um, otherwise I've got other cool stuff I want to be doing. We'll talk about later on in the episode. Um, but that's all our hobby for now. Uh, it sounds like everybody's been having fun getting stuff done and, uh, the tables, uh, I think, I mean, having painted um, models on the table um, by everybody is, I mean, more people in our in our uh, campaign have been uh, getting their models painted up and putting them on the table. And it's just been, it's been cool seeing, uh, seeing more cinematic battlefields. So, mm-hmm. well, let's, uh, let's jump to an update about our campaign, um, our, our local league over at the Warhammer store here in, um, the Madison area. Um, I guess everybody, let's, let's just do a little update. Josh, uh, how has your, uh, was it week seven uh, or I guess six and seven? How did six, that go? Six and seven. Yeah, no. So um, it's been fun. So I, I managed to wrap up my previous quest before uh, last week's uh, games and um, got my nice juicy artifact, which gives me a plus two wild die to use at the beginning of each game, which has been, it's been helpful so far, which is certainly nice. nice. So last week I ended up playing the first of my new mission, which is, a, I think it's Cold Vengeance. 
against uh, a new player we had in the area, and it was a really fun, close game. And uh, and then yeah, this this thir- past Thursday, I played against Paven, and we had a, again a really fun game, challenging, and and uh, I just had the unfortunate luck of having one model in my hammer, and he had to assassinate it. So <laughs> it, was, it, was, it didn't turn out to be too difficult for him, although there were some some tactical challenges. I, I maybe had a good chance of getting away with it if I'd made some better choices. So it's definitely a fun game, though. Nice, nice, uh, and. Um, you're the first one to kind of get through your quest, grab that uh, that artifact at the end, and kind of start on something new. Um, how has it been, kind of dropping your your glory and your territories and starting fresh? It's it's been fun because it's uh, now I've kind of started over with you know a new knowledge base and okay, what can I do? What can I get away with? I have a little bit more tactical knowledge about how that all works and now it's now i'm on the other end of it where i've got to mitigate other people's advantages and how do i work against the the play against my opponents who may have 1200 or more points and uh, and now i have less so it's definitely been a fun challenge yeah have you been tempted to use your glory to get some extra bodies or extra points on the table not yet no so i'm one glory point away from getting a, a territory and then i'll have 50 and that should get me one more model at least so yeah. wait for yeah. that there you go uh paul i don't know have uh, have you gotten to play some games in the past couple of weeks paul um yes i actually played i think it was like what four or five games at my house one week um which was kind of amazing you came over eric um, played a game in my house uh, my friend alan came over he played four and then i played one against my son as well so that Very was nice. super fun. Um, all those games were on my own custom terrain, so that was enjoyable for me as well. Um, I like uh, just seeing what people build. Uh, so I didn't build any of the tables. The, the opponent built all the tables that we were playing, so that was pretty fun. Uh, yeah. And I, I was able to make it past my first convergence. And deny my friend Alan his first convergence. So it was success <laughs> all around. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, I really appreciated when you had me over and you said, go ahead and build the table. And I just cackled. Do you remember me yeah. cackling? Yep. Um, and uh, my eyes lit up with glee, all that kind of stuff. So it's 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 cool to be able to do that. That's a very nice host thing to do. Uh, yeah, um, it, it's just fun to see what people who didn't design it do with the materials, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, it, it it makes me think about the the terrain in a completely different way because yeah. I built them to do one thing and then people come over and they make something completely different. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It gives you some ideas. I'm going to sneak in here before Pavend because what? we have we have a similar point thing in here, but I want to get mine in first. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I beat Josh great. and he's no longer undefeated. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> what a nice uh, post. <laughs> I had to, yeah. uh, <laughs> yeah. After, uh, talking about the behaviors of good hosting, um, I, uh, had to do my second convergence and it was my second time on that convergence, but it was my fourth time playing that particular, um, the ritual. Uh, and so I was like, <laughs> I have to win this one. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I managed to pull it out. It was another, um, it's again, one of these, I, I, I'm loving the unmade or untamed beast because I feel like they've got so many different tools. And one, and my first Fang was able to kind of uh, pull one of his models uh, away from the, the ritual objective uh, to lessen the, the penalty against my final dice roll. Um, and, and it was, I don't remember if I think I rolled 
a healthy well. a, a healthy role. I don't know if it would have mattered, but it was it was nice yep. to kind of be able to, to to roll well that time. Uh, and then I played uh, uh, Dave's Iron Jaws, and I played Vince's Night Haunts. And both of those ended with the Heart Eater uh, quadding his Unleash the Beast uh, and going in and just murderizing uh, <laughs> whoever. Like I had, it was one of those where each scenario came down to like just one model needed to go for me to to be able to win. Um, and uh, he went in and did the job. the The more impressive one was the against the Mega Boss, uh, not Mega Boss. Sorry, the um, the the brute. Um, and, uh, you know, I think he had, I don't know if I had taken many points off him, but he had, you know, no, I did. I do think he had like 15 to, to 18 points left out of his 30. Um, and the heart, the heart, uh, eater went in and did like, you know, 18 to, to 22 points of, of damage in, in one, I had to use one activation to move. And then he had something like seven dice to roll and he was strength, <laughs> strength, seven, uh, and, and doing three, six or no. And it was like damage was, um, you know, it, damage was, was added onto that with that, that ability. So, um, so he went in and did, did his work twice. So I, and I, I rarely get these quads and it just so happened in the last round of both of these games. Um, and then I played Aaron's bone splitters and, uh, we had a combination of, of high ground where you have to, every model that ends the, the turn, uh, on three inches or higher, you get a victory mm-hmm. point four. And then we had uh, marshlands. So it was minus one, uh, to your move characteristic. If you started your move on the, on the, on the battlefield floor and so we called it uh instead of uh, the floor is lava we cut the floor is marshmallows um and so it's a lot of trying to get off the floor because it was marshmallows and you get stuck um and and i have not beat aaron's bone splitters yet so um uh, i chose to t- take a first a second first fang a second fang uh instead of more um planes runners and I probably should have just taken more planes runners, had more bodies on the table. So it is what it is. Um, those guys hit hard. All right, Paven, now you can go. <laughs> okay. Well, well, yeah, now that Josh is bad, I've beaten him once. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, that was, it was a really fun game. Uh, he definitely had an uphill battle based on the scenario and, you know, kind of keeping his hammer light. The I think he still could have gotten away with it, um, but he kind of left me like a slight opening to get a squig on his eight wound guy, and I was able to take him out. So that was very satisfying. Um, I think my maybe my best game was actually against Ben, Josh's son, who we had a really cool game out. Ben was on his final convergence, so it was a high stakes game. And turn one, I just bounced on his necromancer and killed him in in like one shot. Oh, yeah. So he was feeling real, real far off the back foot and I was feeling pretty good slash pretty bad. And (laughs) but it was a objective capture mission or victory condition. And he just was able to bring so many skeletons onto the board. I just like could not keep him off it. So he still came up with a win. And it was nice to have a game where it looks really bad one way and then the other. And then they like kind of flops like halfway through it flops to the other way and uh so that was that was a cool game i played some other games against great players but those are my certainly my highlights from the last few weeks 
Yeah, I was I was right next to you when that happened. Uh, you know, the first activation, I was like, oh no, that that I bet you're both feeling pretty bad about something like that happening where the hero comes off first turn. But then I was super surprised to hear that he pulled it out. So um, I think that was, you know, certainly too showing that he's played a lot of uh, games with those uh, with the Legion of Gash. You've played a lot of games with the um, the Squig Squad. So. Um, uh, yeah, I mean anything can happen at that point. So yeah, never give up. Always play it out. Exactly. Cool, cool. All right. Well, that's um, you know the campaign's going well. This last uh, time we had uh, ten players, six games. We kind of had a, a lull maybe a week ago where it seemed like, or two weeks ago where it seemed like it was a little low, but it's, it feels like it's picking back up. And we're going to end this eight week season with a bang. We're going to be playing some. Um, some things we're going to be playing, maybe the Arena of Blood out of the September White Dwarf and possibly a, a Monster Hunt or two. And I know Halloween's in there, so I think we're going to be jumping uh, back in the campaign starting in November. And then, like I said, we have uh, an event on the 16th. So we've got I'm, – I'm, I'm really happy with kind of how much activity we have going on, the participation, the excitement levels, and, um, you know, there's a lot of – there's a lot of cool things. So I'm excited to, to share more about that as we kind of wrap up and reflect on our first campaign. Um, and part of that's going to be soliciting the group for their thoughts on maybe um, how it went, what they would change, house rules they'd be interested in, um, their highs, you know, highs or lows. And we've gotten, I think, some feedback um, here and there as people, you know, we're gamers, we talk, we, we share ideas um, already. But um yeah, looking forward to summarizing and boiling it down to a few things and making some changes for the next campaign. So I know, Josh, even from day one, we've been talking about what would we house rule anything. So it's been a little bit hard not to put our own spin on things uh, for this. But we'll get there, right, guys? Oh, yeah. All right. Let's talk a little bit about Warcry news. Josh, what are some of the things that have come out, um, details, information, products in the last couple of weeks? Um, so we did get recently, just this past week, we got an updated errata and designer's commentary to include monsters and mercenaries, corrections and changes. And uh, all of it means, seems to make sense, you know, just mainly keywords or symbols that were missed, uh, corrections in the uh, ever-chosen warband, the movement and the toughness were swapped, and, um, and also a just one or two corrections in the, in the main rule set, like the Chakram for the Cypher Lords. And additionally, um, earlier in the week, they gave us a preview of what's to come in Warcry. And um, this was interesting because they, they did say, well, obviously the, the starter set is not going to be around forever, so pick it up if you really want it. However, to mitigate that, they are going to be releasing um, you know, models from the starter set terrain, um, as a the uh, a ravaged land called the Azurite Ruin Chapel, so that will be coming out to help people expand upon that uh, that terrain set if they wish. Uh, they will also have a new book called the Tome of Champions, which is supposed to contain um, cards for all the factions, um, including well, we're assuming including the Spire Tyrants and the and the uh, Flame guys. The Flame. Thank you. Um, and um, and theoretically, um, some you know monsters and mercenaries, or we're not sure if those are going to be separate or all together. However, the the really interesting aspect has been Sam Pearson twittered, um, and he's you know, one of the developers of Warcry. He indicated that there are lots of other things in Tome of Champions that people have been discussing and asking about as well. So it's not just going to be 
the um, the cards. So there should be some other interesting aspects to it. So definitely looking forward to that. They also previewed one of the Spire Tyrant Marls, and uh, which looks pretty cool, and uh, a new monster that's specific to Warcry called the Fomeroid Crusher. So um, again, all exciting things, kind of indicating that they've got a long-term plan and lots of interesting things are on the way to add to our experience, and as well as new and unique models that we get to, to play in our games. Look, looking forward to it. Any Anything stand out to you guys or, or pique your interest the most? Uh, Paul, anything that uh, you loved more than anything else? Well, the thing I'm kind of interested in is that Fomoroid Crusher, right? And it's actually not a war cry reason. It's more of a Forge World has an army called the Famir, and they are one-eyed giant lizards. And now we're getting a Fomoroid Crusher. So I'm wondering if there might be something going on for AOS to get Famir moving into a full-on army. Nice. Interesting. Yep, yep. Uh, what was your guys' take on the, the Fomoroid Crusher, Paven? Did you, did you dig that guy? I dig that guy. I also dig what that guy represents, which is like the opportunity for Warcry or GW Studio to release more weird stuff from the corners of the mortal realms and mm-hmm. what else they could kind of give to us. And so it's really, it's a really cool model and I'm really excited that they're going to like expand the monsters range, which I wasn't expecting as part of Warcry. Who would we be able to ally with? Now, that'll be an interesting question. Um, yeah. Chaos. yeah, I think what this release is telling me is that they're moving into the design space that Underworlds is in where they've basically been given free reign to design something that's cool, and then we'll just make it a part of the game, right? We'll release it as what's in there. And at first, I don't know if that was necessarily what we thought was going to happen, so it's kind of cool to see that that is exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yep. Good point. Yep. Um, the one thing that was interesting to me is that the Azerite Ruin Chapel is actually not a Warcry Ravaged Lands... Uh, that it's just a, uh, according to the box that's there, is just a Warhammer scenery, um, or Warhammer oh. Age of Sigmar scenery. So, and and it only contains a small portion of um, what comes in the box, and and it includes some of the like second tier um, uh, pillars and stuff, which is a little mm-hmm. bit different and interesting. Uh, and so my hope is is that we do get another Ravage Lands that has more of the starter set um, terrain. But if not, it is one of those things where I feel like if you do want that terrain, <laughs> you need to go and buy it uh, yeah. right away. So, um, and and all of the yeah, the emphasis again reiterate that the cards that came out for non chaos uh, factions, those card packs are going away. Uh, so if you can, you know if you can find them, pick them up if you want to. But the Tome of Champions will have all of those cards or have all of those stats and. Kind of like they were in, I'm assuming like they were in um, Monsters and Mercenaries, where the, you you know turn to the page and you can see their card stat there. Um, for all of those non-chaos, it could be you know they could add some more during that during this release. Who knows? Um, does anybody have a a weird off the wall idea of what could be in Tome of Champions that we either, as as Sam Pearson said, people have been asking for or that none of us have asked for because we're not. We don't have our minds where GW has their minds. <laughs> um, I think probably uh, the only thing that comes to mind right away is perhaps 
a more detailed aftermath phase, you know, perhaps, you know, more injury, a lengthy injury table, or perhaps additional quests. Those are the two things that kind of came to my mind right away. But Yeah, I actually am wondering if Underworld's warbands are going to get their own allies rules. To me, those seem custom made for some super fun um, additions, basically, or just their own side quests, right? I mean, you basically have a bunch of models that you can fight against that your opponent can control as well. So that might be a cool aspect of it. Paven, do you have any idea who that is on the cover? Yeah, like the it has lots of horns. I, I don't know. Tons. I don't know. Do you yeah. think that's a, a new model or, or something I else? Think it's just a piece of art. Okay. I thought it was a bloodthirster when I first saw it, but I think it's too human looking. Uh, Wait, in the face. Are we going to get bloodthirsters in Warcry? I don't know. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> but we can dream right maybe uh, demons maybe they'll have a demon warband hey that'd be kind of cool absolutely there's so much cool stuff they could do my mind yeah. is just running wild with like what they're gonna do next yep right mm. and i think that's the the right answer is they they may do all of it but what's coming next um but uh yeah and that also says 2019 on it which means that that could be something like a general's handbook or a, a tone, something that changes every year. Um, so it could be updating a lot of the the cards or stat blocks that are available for each of them. What factions have stat blocks? Um, any uh, alliance, you know, any abilities that come with those different factions, etc. Um, it's kind of a place where they're now. The cards are a hard thing to change, right? Now that they're, once they're printed and out, printed and out there. But similarly, this could be something that allows them to update it and tweak them to, to bring balance or um, new new um, flavor to the game as the years progress. So, I, yeah. I, quick, I have a quick question for the group. Yeah. Do you think this Tome of Champions, I um, know uh, this is a little bit out of the lane for this podcast, but do you think it's going to get a ba- – you think we're going to get a balancing pass this time? Or do you think that's Tome of Champions 2020? Hmm. Are you saying like that they're going to? Are they going to make big, big changes for the purposes of balancing so quickly after release? Yeah, I wonder if we're going to get points changes because that tends to be what the gotcha the dated books, the big part of the dated books that uh, come out with different games are. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder right. if anyone here. What do you think, Josh? I don't know. It's a great question. Um, I think it might be too soon. But it's not out of the realm of possibility if they've noticed things so far. Um, yeah, but it, that would be interesting to see. Yeah, I wonder if, because we do get some stuff like that if we've got a book released, like an Age of Sigmar book released in the spring, sometimes by the summer in the GHB, there might be a points change or something you know changed there. I think this might be have been already in the hopper. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if it's just going to be maybe just adding to what we have and then establishing the yearly thing. What do you think, Paven? Do you think that they'll change points? I actually don't think they will. I think okay. it's too soon. Too soon. Paul, what uh, were you thinking? Well, my hot take is I don't think they need to change the points. I know I've been hearing online about how the non-Chaos Warbands are just so much better than the regular Chaos Warbands. It's really not fair, et cetera, et cetera, right? Right. But my opinion is, is that I disagree with that because everybody's been playing the Chaos Warbands with one box of their Warband. 
But have you been playing the non-Chaos Warband or the fully tooled list of you write the list first and then you buy the models? So if, for example, you buy two boxes of Corvus Cabal, you're going to have a much more tooled list that does exactly what you want to, and you're going to be picking and choosing which models you want. And the second thing that makes it much more competitive for Chaos, in my opinion, is the access to those Chaos Beasts. I haven't really heard many people talk about that, but that's a huge um, ability to be able to get a Harpy with Fly, Movement 8, right? Or to get just some more bodies on the table, cheap bodies on the table. Mm-hmm. And I think that those two things in particular mean that there isn't actually a balance issue. We just haven't really explored the fullness of what the design space was intended to convey at this point, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. And, and, uh, and also, they have Chaos has a lot more mercenaries to choose from. You know, a wide yep. variety is now so... We've been very cautious to to kind of uh, uh, add to the noise of 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 what's better or best or balanced or imbalanced because I again you know some of us Josh how many games have you played so far? Uh, maybe sixteen. Right, uh, I've maybe done ten, fifty, or twelve. Um, you know, same around this table. Like we've all been playing, but we've not played every warband or played against every warband to really get a, a good sense. So um, that it's, I, I appreciate that, that balanced idea that there's more to explore um, and we're just scratching the surface so far. And, and that's also exciting because that means there's lots of room for our, um, you know, for us to explore within the warbands that we have. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, what are we going to do next and what are we going to incorporate, et cetera. So, but yeah, um, I appreciate uh what they did in this article and it was cool to just look forward and get excited. So mm-hmm. why don't we go ahead and go to a break? And when we come back, we're going to start talking about our hobby, um, kind of how to get into the hobbying part. And by that, I mean the aesthetic part, the building, the painting, the terrain, uh, uh, making your tables look fantastic, getting into kit bashing and uh, scratch building and all that kind of stuff. So we'll be back in a minute to share those ideas. Thanks again for subscribing to Dogs of Warcry. We hope that our love for the Age of Sigmar setting comes through in all of our podcasts that you listen to. Whether it's the Mortal Realm story phase, our Underworlds podcast, What the Hex, or this little gem... If so, consider dropping a tip over at themortalrealms.com forward slash Patreon. Thanks. All right, welcome back. Our victory condition this episode is to discuss um, how we get our warbands built, maybe customized and painted, um, as well as our terrains and our boards. So, uh, we're no holds barred. We can go as far as we want to go, but we want to make sure that we cover something for listeners at all levels. So whether you're a beginner, maybe you're getting, becoming more advanced or you're, you know, already hitting it out of the park. Uh, hopefully you'll find something in this interesting. Um, why don't we go ahead and start with building our war bands? Um, Josh, why don't you give us a quick run through of the steps to kind of uh, build a warband and get it on the table? Sure. 
Uh, so in, in general, for most of the you know the kids, we're talking about Warcry and in the hobby in general. Um, usually you have your models, and uh, most people will have tools. You know, you want an exacto knife, razor blade of some sort. Uh, some sprue cutters are really helpful to have. Um, I loved getting it. I used to use an exacto knife and, and files every time, but getting some sprue cutters very very nice to have. I recently picked up a mold line scraper, and that is very hand, handy to have, but not necessary. You definitely want some like uh, jeweler's files for getting out those mold lines, or even uh, to help kind of uh, blend some pieces together. Um, typically, you'll want to dry fit the models. There's some pretty good instructions, and, and some of them are press fit. But if you always want to make sure you do a dry fit to make sure everything's fitting the right way. You've got the right piece to the right model. And then you can use a variety of different super glues or plastic glues. Uh, super glue kind of adheres them together. The plastic glue actually melts it a little bit. So um, if you've made a mistake, the plastic glue is a little harder to fix sometimes. And occasionally you might have to do some gap filling. And uh, there are a wide variety of epoxies that people use. Green stuff is one that's commonly used. Uh, you kind of mix a couple of the blue and the yellow green stuff or white stuff together to kind of fill in the gaps if you've done, you know, didn't quite get things to fit together very well. And I think those are kind of the generic assembly steps. And, and Games Workshop does a pretty good job with instructions to, that you can follow and uh, and see exactly what you need to do to get together. Absolutely. Now, the question for each of you, is there any ways that you deviate from this, from the, you know, uh, clip off the sprue, uh, demold them, dry fit, glue, gap fill, um, uh, glue on the base or or don't glue on the base uh, yet, do basing separately, that sort of stuff. Is there any ways that you guys deviate from that? Paven, do you have any things that you skip or steps that you add in? Uh, I don't think, I think I'm pretty much a very uh, kind of a run-in-the-mill hobbyer. I don't think I do anything uh, very interesting or out of bounds. One thing I did want to mention, though, before I, you know, we kept going and gave all of our like tips and our hot takes about the hobby is that there's no way to do it wrong. Um, like it's, it's your hobby, just have fun with it. Just get, get open your box and go nuts. Like don't, don't over, uh, stress about doing it the right way or doing all the steps or getting it perfect. You're gonna, you're gonna make mistakes and that's cool. Uh, you're going to get better. I think just, uh, just kind of continually working on it is the best thing you can. Absolutely. Fantastic. Thanks for adding that. Anything that you, uh, any one of these steps give you the most consternation or you love it or you hate it? And you do something to kind of get get through it? Yeah, uh, good question. Yeah, I think the one I struggle with the most is the gap filling because it. I think it takes the longest out of all of the steps, but it's also the one I notice the most when I don't do it the right way or don't do it the way that when I maybe should have or where I would appreciate it. Like if you, you might not notice like kind of a thin kind of join area when you're building it, but once you've like put on all those layers of paint and you really like, brought up the contrast of the model it like a really strong line through a cloak you can really notice and so sometimes i'll even go back and gap fill like after i've painted there you go that's my current how about step. you paul are there any uh kind of steps you deviate from or things you do differently or or especially um yeah for sure actually what i usually start by doing is going through and looking through the assembly instructions first before i put anything together to get an idea of like what the steps are supposed to be because sometimes I can get too excited about building a project and be like, Oh, I'm going to do this thing. And then I figure out that actually I needed to wait on this thing to be able to do this other thing. Um, so 
basically what it means is with like Corvus Caval, a lot of the assembly instructions will say it's A part and B part putting together and then C part on the outside. So as a very beginner thing, make sure you understand which order that GW is telling you to put these models together. Because if you put C on before you put B on, B might not fit. And to me, the worst feeling is when you assembled something and you have to take it apart or you've messed something up for a model. And so I usually look through the instructions and then just look through the actual sprues themselves. And like Josh said, you always want to try dry fitting when you've actually started it because once you've glued something on, it can be annoying and frustrating to get it off and you might break it. So I usually try and do that. Oh, no, I, got a, I got a hot tip here, and um, this is why I prefer pla- uh, super glue over plastic glue, because um, if you make a mistake, it's a lot easier to break your mini apart with super glue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, ben and my stepson has been putting them in the fridge to make the bond weaker and then popping them off that way. Yep. Uh, if this is your first models that you've ever built, be aware that the assembly is probably a little bit more complicated than most other models that you've ever done, if you've ever done models. Um, and it is not all like this. <laughs> uh, and there's a lot of YouTube videos that can help you to understand exactly how something is assembled or the terrain in particular. One of the YouTube videos seemed pretty necessary to understand how to put your stuff together. Hey, Eric, can I do a I'm... quick shout out? It's on topic. Yes. Okay, I, I want to shout out the uh, the Warhammer store in Fitchburg because um, if you are new to the hobby, um, they will like really set you up with like kind of tutorials on everything you need to do. I brought a young kid who was very excited about the hobby but had never done anything like this, and um, Vint, who runs the store, he set him up with like a little build tutorial, and he built a model and got really excited about that. And then as well as like a paint tutorial for how to paint a miniature. And um, if you have, if you're interested and want to like kind of get started, if you have a Warhammer store, they're completely set up for this. And it's a really great experience. Fantastic. Yeah. And sometimes even your local game store might have somebody who's, you know, into miniatures and might provide something like that. But yeah, the the Warhammer store in particular, that's part of their mission is to help people kind of get started in the hobby. Uh, so that's fantastic. Um, I so I love looking over the sprues and trying to guess what goes together. <laughs> uh, um, and some of that, you know, you because sometimes you get started to put things together and and you know, similar to what you said, Paul's look over the instructions and see where the variations are or where the you know your options are. Because yeah, sometimes if you put together just your first option, you miss, you know, you miss where you could have deviated and that sort of stuff. So that's not even kit bashing. That's just, you know, options on the sprue. I love to know what my options are. Um, I did use the mold line remover for a while and, and I like it because it was very sturdy. Um, it's, and it's very safe. And I think it's a really good, um, tool for, especially for younger modelers and, uh, hobbyists. Um, but I also found that it, is very capable of scraping too much plastic away at times. Um, and so I've kind of gone back to using an X-Acto knife to touch up my mold lines because it can be a little more delicate and I can get that tip into kind of some smaller areas. 
And, uh, and so that's something where if you feel comfortable with an exacto knife, um, I find that to be a little bit more useful. Although I've also heard of people using things like, um, so certain types of cements or whatever to kind of just melt those off without mm. melting the plastic. So those are, uh, some things I need to, to kind of look into. I always use plastic glue, um, because I, <laughs> I glue, th- I like to, you know, some, some of these are very precarious in their, um, kind of how they fit on the model. You know, sometimes they're, you know, just a very small um, touch point. And so when I'm bonding, when I want plastic to plastic, I prefer that. But there's plenty of times where I'm, um, when you're adding something else like green stuff, you want to use super glue uh, to add that green stuff onto the plastic because green stuff will not glue with with plastic glue. Um, so I tend to use it for, super glue when I'm gluing two things that are of different materials together. Um, uh, and I too need to, I, I'll, I guess the last thing I'll say is sometimes on mold lines, I'll wait till I've assembled it to do some mold lines. So I don't have to do all the mold lines. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do the ones yeah. you can see and not worry about the ones you can't see. Um, yeah. But yeah, to, uh, I'm not, I'm not, you know, OCD at all, but mold lines are like one of my pet peeves, you know, so I've got, I've got a variety of these, uh, jeweler files that I just use to make sure all the mold lines are gone. Cause you know, cause I've had occasions where I put models together and painted it and I was like, crap, yeah. there's a mold line, right? Right. You know, so I, I'm, I take a lot of time making sure there are no mold lines and that all the curves yep. are maintained and everything else just to make sure. But, uh, I, but yeah, yeah, it's definitely, <laughs> So um, one other thing I'll mention about the gap filling is uh, yeah. one thing I found extremely helpful is that Games Workshop does come out with the liquid green stuff, and that can be really easy to use to fill in some of those smaller gaps than having to mix together the epoxy yourself and use it and have too much. That liquid green stuff is, is actually quite handy. I've used it quite a bit. Yeah, I found that it is not the same thing as green stuff. Right. Um, it's a different texture. It's a different consistency. Um, it's a different strength even, um, you know, it's, I think it does well when it's down in the gaps and it kind of bridges between, you know, uh, two raised areas and it just kind of sits in there. Um, I've tried, uh, using it as a texturing, uh, you know, if I want to add texture to something that liquid green stuff can, can work well in there or whatnot, but it's, it's certainly easier to scrape off. Um, it doesn't adhere as, as well as, as green stuff does. So. Yep. I agree. But it, but it is a handy material for sure. Any other kind of tips, Pavend or Paul, on kind of just getting started with assembly or any advanced tips with, you know, building um, your models kind of out of the box? Well, so here is a kind of like duh statement, but um, it might not be apparent to somebody who's not a modeler. Um, none of us sit around and just assemble models. I like to watch movies or TV shows or listen to podcasts. So one of the things that my wife Kat would note is that our podcasts for the hobby tend to be much longer than the podcasts that she listens to. Those are closer to 15 to 30 minutes. But in our hobby, most of us will listen to a podcast, watch a movie while we're doing modeling. It's more that something we typically do with our hands as opposed to something that occupies our minds at all times. And that's what makes it so relaxing and so enjoyable for at least me and I know several I know many other hobbyists mm-hmm. and it shouldn't be a stressful thing to put together your models it shouldn't be a stressful thing to paint them 
and if it turns out to be something that's stressful, maybe find a group of people to do it with. So you can really enjoy the process a little bit more. Um, but that being said, there are always different processes that people like. Some people love painting the most. They hate assembly. Some people love assembly the most. They hate list building. It, it It's just, we have a community, so make yourself available to the resources that the community provides. Great points. Um, yeah, great tips. Uh, listen to Dogs of War Cry while you hobby. That's what I heard. <laughs> oh. um, but also... Um, I, you know, you may have heard this already, uh, but you know, pop over to our Discord channel, um, uh, themortalrealms.com forward slash Discord, and ask any questions that you want in our hobby space. Uh, there's some uh, uh, hobbyists of all levels there, and and nobody should feel uh, embarrassed if you have a question on how something's supposed to get used, etc., or for or some feedback. And if you're great at at doing this and you've been doing this for a long time, please still come over and share with us uh, the cool stuff that you're that you're working on. So now we're going to go to a little more advanced technique. And this is, uh, Paul alluded to this a little bit in terms of his inability to build something stock. Um, <laughs> let's talk about kit bashing. Um, and there's uh, a number of different things here and we'll, we'll do a little bit of generalized conversation about this, but then we'll take it personal and we'll kind of, uh, talk about some of our examples or things that we've done specifically, with our war bands. Um, so let's start with kind of the reasons or why you would kit bash. So you've got the models that games workshop has made. They're fantastic. They're created by world renowned, uh, 3d modelers. And, uh, you know, they're often painted by world renowned painters. Um, why would we take these beautiful works of art and ruin them, uh, uh, with our own <laughs> creative <laughs> ideas? Uh, 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 Paul, why don't you give us uh, some reasons why someone might want to get into kit bashing? I think the obvious one is because, especially with these Warcry Warbands, when it comes to chaos, you don't want two of the exact same model, right? So kit bashing is something that you would do to make your models look slightly different. I feel like Warcry gives our models a lot of character, and it helps me to have them look different. Um, the other thing is, because it's fun, I, like to me, it's easily one of the most enjoyable parts of the hobby, is to take a bit and put it in a place that's not intended and say, but can I make this work? Uh, and that's one of the fun things that you hear if you listen to Stormcast. They've had designers on, and they say one of their favorite things is to watch the kits go into the wild and see what unintended purposes people have subverted their models to <laughs> and how amazing it is to watch that happen. So that's, that's a cool thing for me. How about you, Josh, any, any reasons pop out for why you would kit bash or change something up? Yeah, no, I think just like Paul said, um, you know, a lot of it is, you know, you know, I love the models and I don't necessarily want each one to look the same because, you know, you want to name them different models. They get destiny levels. They get, you know, this is true across armies. Uh, there's also the occasion where, you know, in the kits, you know, for example, in Cypher Lords, you have one mirror blade, you can have the glaive, you can have another that has two-handed swords. And maybe you want more of one type, but you don't want it to look the same. So you may do a little bit of kit bashing to use one model base, but change out the weapons or... Perhaps you want, you know, more of the glaives, so you find a way to convert it. Or maybe you, okay, I've got the ones with the glaives, but they're male. Maybe I want a female with the glaives, so maybe you'll kit bash to add that model. So just kind of adding some character differentiation 
and um, and like you know, I said a kind of narrative where you know maybe in like more you know for example in Mordheim you might gain an item you might model that you know add that crossbow to a particular model as you're going along. So there are different ways and different reasons for doing that, and I I don't have as much experience as Paul in, in terms of kit bashing and stuff, but I've I've taken on some challenges last year in terms of just trying things out and sculpting and doing weird, lots of weird stuff. And it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of a lot of creative energy and it's kind of liberating in a sense. And it's, it's interesting what you can get away with. So I definitely have learned to enjoy that aspect of the hobby more. Absolutely. I think there's also sometimes where the models for that war brand may not be the most appealing to you, but you like how they play. Um, and so for instance, you know, the idea that you could use a different model range or set of models to be counts as, mm-hmm. um, you know, so for instance, the untamed beasts, some people may not really enjoy that, uh, kind of barbarian, um, bone aesthetic and want something a little more corn. Um, and so maybe they want to use, uh, the, the blood reavers, uh, kit to build their core, you know, planes, runners, etc., And then, you know, use some of those, the other heroes, um, blood warriors for, the more um, unique characters, but they don't have all of the the things that the core war bands have. So you would need to kind of bring, add things to them to give them the same weapons or the same, you know, something like that. So there's a kind of being able to take an aesthetic that you like, you know, over in this kit and bring that into kind of the war band that you're using. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, just just wanting to tweak it a little bit different or or just having a preference. Uh, but then also uh, narrative uh, inspiration. If there's just something that you want to play in this game and you're thinking about it and you want to find something that fits to it. Now, um, there's some considerations if you're going to be doing some kit bashing or changes uh, to, you know, uh, bringing, putting two models together or adding something onto uh, a model range that wasn't meant for Warcry. So I guess I'll throw this one over to Paven. What are some considerations that people should think about if they're kind of going off the rails a little bit? Great question, Eric. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, there's a number of things you <laughs> want to think about. I think when you are um, when you are kit bashing or converting your models, something just to you know keep you in the realm of the of the Warhammer universe. And the first thing I like to think about is like what you see is what you get. Um, abbreviated W-Y-S-I-W-I-G, if you see it anywhere. And this helps, um, particularly when you're playing against opponents, so they know like how your how your miniatures are armed is how they're playing in the game. So it's primarily about like what equipment they have. And so if the rules for your miniature have them having two swords, they're not running around with like a pistol. Because um, that can be confusing, and it also, for me, takes away from like the narrative experience if I have to keep, you know, switching out that pistol for two swords or or, um, or whatever other example you're thinking about. Um, yeah, yeah, that's the first think, thing that comes to mind for me. I think too, like if you've got, um, I speak to my my heart eater, which is the large, the largest, or one of the larger models in the untamed beast range, or if you've got. Um, uh, Paul, what is the model in the Corvus Cabal that has the wings uh, kind of unfold? The Shrike Talon. The Shrike Talon. If you're going to use something else or you're going to, um, you know, kind of try and emulate that with something else, does it have a similar profile or is it, you know, is it a big model? Um, if you're trying to replace a big model, 
replace it with another big model um, or um, you know something to that effect. If you're not going to use those feathered wings, are you going to use other wings that um, are of a similar size? Um, I think that can be important um, for that. But I, I think in the end, if you've put some real effort into kind of making that change, people will appreciate it. And um, I think, you know, to the, the WYSIWYG, you don't want to confuse people with what you've, what you've created. You want there to be kind of a, a similarity in size and shape and load out to what you're replacing. Um, so now there's a lot of ways to do this. Um, uh, why don't we go through a few, um, uh, Josh, what are some of the ways that we can get started with kit bashing? What's, what's the easiest way to, to get into this? Um, well, I think, you know, what a lot of people would do is they'll combine kits, you know, do a variety of different things. And, you know, and that's, you know, taking one kit and another kit and, and mixing the parts together when you assemble them is a great way to do that. Uh, but you can do something as small as, you know, just, just swapping the heads, you know, ordering some heads separately and putting them on to give it the right feel or, or look that you want. Um, you know, and, and one thing I did is I sculpted some fox ears on my Cypher Lords. You know, it's a small, it's some considerable effort, but just a small change. You know, the base model's the same, but it adds that character and it, and it kind of made it my own warband in that sense. But, um, but yeah, there are also, you know, like, for example, one thing I'm considering is the Ivrain model from the Eldar line um, is a really nice model. Looks like a noble um, needs a little bit of work, but she has a fan, she has a headdress, and has a, you know, I could swap the head there, and it'd be a really great thrall master. And I'm, I'm planning to do that conversion coming up. And again, it's kind of a combination of a model with my Cypher Lords models and a little bit of changes, and it, and it should turn out pretty well. But very, again, like you said, symmetry, looking at the size, the shape, she's got a fan, the thrall master has a fan, you know, there's a, lots of alignment there. So, yeah, Paul, talk a little bit about how you took that second, uh, set of, of Corvus Cabal and made them different? Uh, well, number one is you kind of have to have some kind of vision as to what's going on, right? Like, um, so with the Shrike Talon in particular, I can kind of talk about my thought process. The Shrike Talon, looking at the bits, the back area, so the hood, the wings, and the arms are all separate bits. And my goal was to have a female Shrike Talon as opposed to a male Shrike Talon. And if you buy two Warcry Warbands, you're going to end up with an extra leader. Um, so the Shadow Piercer was an extra model for me in that Warband. And is also female. So to me, that seemed like a good start to figuring out how that conversion was going to work. And once I had figured out that that was the model that was going to be on the front, and then I was going to use the back of the Shrike Talon to sell that idea that it is the Shrike Talon, then I started to kind of pose it and, and look at it and stare at the different way that it was posed um, and how that would affect the end of the model and how what things about the original model I wanted to change to really make it look like my own version of that. And so for that, that included the back four pieces being all glued together and the hands as well being glued onto the back piece so that I could figure out where it was going to fit on the back of the torso and then position it, glue it, and then gap fill for that. So it, it really comes down to, for me, looking at the design of the model and deciding what design elements signify that this model is a Shrike Talon. 
And for me, it was definitely those wings, but he's also got these bladed gloves and he's also got the stilts as well. So those were the three elements that I wanted to make sure transitioned from the original model into my conversion. And that's a, a lot of the fun for me is making sure that I identify which pieces signify the leader in the model. And with Warcry, it's pretty easy to figure out those differences because they are designed to look different. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Paven, did you, um, I know that we're going to talk about training a little bit, but with your warband, uh, with the squig squad, did you do any um, swaps or changes or kind of uh, specialize any characters to fit either your narrative or, you know, what's going on? Short answer is no, and also <laughs> the long answer. Um, I just love those models, and I didn't change them at all. Did you have one model that was kind of one thing, and then you turned it into something else? There was a squig hopper that turned into a blame drop bounder, I thought you had said. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely did that, but um, I have both of those models, and I built them according to the instructions. Ah, okay. <laughs> or a swap out. Cool. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I might have changed the squig one guy was on uh, off the instructions, but that's about as innovative as I got. <laughs> well, that's, well, that's. I mean, fair. it was cool that you were able to kind of identify the bits that equaled that person uh, or that that fighter, and then you you created it, had another version of it, um, and you you evolved him um, yeah. uh, as it were into something else. So I thought that was an interesting kind of angle to take, um, even within the bits box, using some of that those similar bits to to the advantage of implying that it's the same person right instead of steering away from them using them to say hey this is the same person um yeah and uh for the record his name was Gitgrit, and he's dead oh. oh wow too soon he died in the first game he uh he got his new armor i, I did he <laughs> keep his receipts <laughs> he had a, he, he died with a healing potion on him Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> that's worse. I did actually um, make my one of my conversions specifically for a narrative reason. I also bought a second box of the Untamed Beasts, and my primary—I I mean, I really enjoyed the aesthetic. I do a lot of kit bashing and stuff in my Age of Sigmar armies, but for this one, I really want to lean. I wanted to lean into it. So, for instance, for my. Uh, for my heroes or kind of, or I would call champions of my warband and my leader, I did um, exposed heads instead of masks or helmets, which is what they kind of come with. And I felt like that would allow me to kind of really distinguish them. So I used some uh, 40k space wolf heads and some um, chaos marauders from age of Sigmar as they're a little bit more wild. They're a little bit more, you know, yelling and screaming or Mohawks or whatever. And I really liked kind of going that direction. Um, I also, um, I like the kitties that come the, the rock tusk prowlers that come the kind of lions with horns. I think they're cool, but because I was naming my war band, the dogs of war cry, I wanted to go with more of a dog theme instead of a cat theme. And so I uh, picked up um, some of the flesh hounds that were chaos flesh hounds. Um, and they're specifically kind of a corn model, but I didn't want to go too heavy corn. So I painted them differently to be more bone structured and have kind of, instead of fur coming out, uh, kind of spiky fur, it's almost as if they've got kind of bone spurs coming out of their backs um, and that sort of thing. Um, and so then I just, I took a different, 
model set and swapped it in for uh, that that unit, that fighter type. Um, and so I've gotten a lot of variety because that five pack has five different, you know, s- sculpts as opposed to the rock dust prowler, which has one. So I was able to bring that to, to come my army by, by grabbing a different kit for that. Um, the last thing I've talked about a little bit is, is I brought in the guy, I had picked up the God sworn hunt from underworlds. And at first I really didn't think I was going to get much out of it. Um, uh, because the, the models have such different loadouts um, and there's not as much uh, bone. There's So these are more dark oath, so they got a little bit more metal and stuff in them. But I was able to actually do a little bit more than I expected. So for instance, there's a woman holding a spear and I took the spear out of her hand and gave her a whip. So now she is a kind of a, a junior beast speaker because the beast speaker has a whip and, and kind of that sort of stuff. Um, I was able to take, um, the, there's a guy with a bow and arrow. Um, and so I gave him a little bit more, I gave him, put him an ax on his hip, um, and, uh, gave him that spear in his bow, repositioned the hand a little bit, um, to make him a second, first fang, a second fang. I keep making this, oh, it's a second fang. Um, <laughs> so things like that, where I was able to kind of take some of those and a few of those were able to be prey takers, which I haven't played a lot with prey takers. So maybe in my, in, in the future, I'll have more of those prey takers on the table. Um, so there's, uh, that, and then, you know, because the second, I really liked the planes runners, the planes runners might be one of my favorite models in this kit. Um, just because they're just kind of lithe and ready to go, but I didn't want them to again, like you said, um, have three of, you know, just doubles of three of the models. And so all I did, I took, I have a, um, a small, uh, model saw and it's a very thin saw with very small teeth and I can, uh, games workshop makes, uh, one that's about the size of an exacto knife. Um, and you can get them in different sizes, but I, I just carefully sawed the hands that were holding the weapons off, um, and would either put them on a different planes runner or I would just slightly um, rotate them so that the hand was holding them at a different angle um, to to just add some variation between. So if I had two models that were posed the same, had the same weapons, that at the very least they're holding them at different angles so I could kind of tell them apart. Um, and so I feel like I was able to kind of use all of these like from the very small cut and rotate, the head swaps, all the way up to um, I have a... <laughs> I have an ally uh, that I had to sculpt using green stuff a fur cloak on him because he did not have enough fur compared to the rest of the untamed beasts models, which are covered in fur. Um, and so um, it's been a while since I've done that and I wish I had done better. <laughs> <laughs> um, Painting will help. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it, yeah. Painting hides a lot of mistakes and we'll get to that soon. Um, so, uh, you know, like um, in your war bands, the, there is some fantastic sculpts in these kits, but you can add your own flavor to them and you can do something as simple as a, as a head swap or something as uh, a little bit bigger, like taking green stuff and sculpting something on them. Um, any other kind of tips or experiences uh, with Warcry and kit bashing that you guys want to share? Um, so one of the things that I, while you were talking um, you had talked about using your saw and sawing off the wrist and then turning it, right? Uh, that was something that I had done on my models as well. It's super effective, 
Um, and with the Corvus Cabal, they have these really nice bracers. So you can cut right at the bracer and then rotate the wrist without having to re-sculpt or anything like that. And I've noticed that a lot of the models do tend to have some kind of just little accoutrement um, that allows that to be a little bit less noticeable. So that's kind of a, a tip when you, if you are going to be cutting and swapping, try and find a place where it won't be noticeable that you've got a saw cut through it. Um, the other thing is um, I did actually have one of my models gain three destiny and gain uh, a, a treasure as well. And of course he's just this little mook. So I had to convert him up into being a spire stalker and I, I had a lot of fun using the exact same model, but then the the Spire Stalkers have this like shoulder blade thing going on. They have a specific weapon that's theirs. They have some extended feathers, and then they have a like a foot plate. It's basically one of their legs is armored, and so using those four pieces from cutting them off other models, I was able to make something I think was convincing to show him from this lowly mook into now this rather imposing spire stalker so that was a fun experience awesome um, to be able to do so nice mm-hmm. i hope he doesn't die yeah <laughs> we'll see we'll see yeah right i was just going to add one thing to what paul has said about the i don't know if you guys just use glue to reattach those arms, those hands to the arms or not but mm-hmm. one thing we didn't talk about in terms of the tools and equipment are you know some people use dremel tools or a pin vise to to drill yep. holes and use paper clips or you know thin metal rods to pin things together so it's more sturdy that's something i often do when i'm doing hand swaps and things like that as well so for those small connections that's a place where i think plastic glue makes that strong enough yeah um, and you get you get a little bit, it creates enough viscousness and, and stuff that you can kind of, uh, it'll stick for a little bit and then you can position, um, kind of uh, swivel it to where you like it and test it out. Um, and then to kind of fill that gap, if there is a gap there, while kind of in that middle ground between it being, you know, freshly put on there and uh, completely kind of uh, hardened, if you can push it together, it will... Uh, <laughs> Uh, ooze a little bit of that plastic out um, mm-hmm. and that can be a great way of, of kind of filling any gaps or you know kind of um, giving you a little extra cover for that that wherever you cut um, no that's that's great um, so lots of different ways to use that from the small to big and and yeah it's one of those things where you can get attached to these guys when you uh, these models when you uh, customize them and it can be a, a little disheartening when they do get slain. Um, <laughs> oh man, man. It's, but, but it's, it's the part of, of this game that's kind of fun is when you've you, the risk reward of it. So, yeah. um, all right. So we've got through building, we've taken that to a little more advanced stage with the kit bashing and making these our own, which again, in a small model count army or war band, uh, you have you can put more time into them for the maybe you know for the hobby time you have now we've talked about building we've talked about customizing these models let's talk about where they stand and let's talk about the base the models are sitting on them but they're meant to be somewhere they're not just meant to be standing on black plastic or circular slab of of nothing basing can be as simple as putting some glue down and some sand or some sort of texture 
but it's also an opportunity to create kind of a, a little living space and add something unique to a model. Like we've talked about a model that maybe rises through the ranks or does something fantastic. Uh, instead of changing the whole model, you could simply add something to its base, like a trophy or, um, you know, something like that, uh, to make it more unique. Um, now, this is a, an interesting kind of broad category because there's so many different ways to do this. We're not; po- It's impossible for us to cover everything that goes into basing, um, but maybe each of us could talk a little bit about what kind of base uh, environment that you've created, the materials you're using, and, and kind of how you go about creating it. Uh, Josh, what kind of basing uh, are you doing? Uh, kind of where are you starting and what are you trying to emulate? Um, the first thing I usually start with, and it kind of it ties in with a lot of the, the painting aspect, is visualizing, okay, where is my warband or my model or my army? You know, and either deciding, okay, where are they fighting or where are they from? And that kind of helps me determine, okay, what do I want the base to kind of look like? And uh, and so then from there, I'll decide, okay, you know, it could be anything from moss, you know, a lot of the technical paints at Games Workshop, you know, the Martian iron crust is great for crackle bases. There's some, you know, lava bases, mud, you know, lots of different sand and cobblestones. There's a lot of different variety, and and I've I've done everything, including you know, fake water and all sorts of stuff, depending on where my model is fighting or where it's from. But that's usually what I start with, and from there I'll move forward. I've even used like crushed gemstones as you know, crystals and things like that. So it it kind of goes, you know, what is it? What is it? I visualize, and then I'll run with that. Absolutely. Pavin, what did you do for basing for the Squig Squad? Great question, Eric. Um, so for my Squig Squad, I base them consistently with the rest of my destruction forces because um, I want them to be able to be in a unified Age of Sigma army at some point. Um, and the way, kind of the way I thought about their basing was for that whole collection is about where they're from, and they're from a like wasteland in Gur um, called the Hungering Plateaus. But we don't need to get to get into that. Um, but it's it's a kind of a general kind of rough wild area, and so the base it, I use the crackle paint, and then I dry brush it, and then I put a tuft of grass there. Sometimes there's skulls around, depending on how dangerous the model is, because I like to give that theme to it. Some of the uh, like hot tips I have around basing, which wasn't part of your question, but I'll I'll, I'll give it to you anyway. Go for it. <laughs> um, one, I want to reiterate how important basing is for making your army look complete and nice. Um, some people, and this was myself uh, before too, that they kind of paint the whole miniature, they do put it in a ton of work, and then they feel done. Um, but really, the basing shouldn't take you very long, and it really takes your um, model to that kind of finished state. And with basing, I think you want to do something relatively simple that you can do quickly because um, you're going to do it, and it shouldn't take away focus from the model. It should be kind of a frame for them rather than something that's going to like draw their your focus or your attention, the viewer's attention away from the miniature who should always be the star of the show. Um, and my last hot tip is um, if you have a, a try to uh, balance the tone against the, the miniature. So if your miniature is darker in tone, then you want to go for a light base. And then um, if you're, you know, your miniature is lighter, then go for a dark base. And if in the middle, you kind of go for the middle as well. Nice. Nice. Those Very are my cool. basic thoughts. No, I like them. That's those are yeah. the basics. Paul, uh, tell us about the Murder Boys and uh, their habitat. How did you how did you decide to uh, do their basing? Well, I decided to base mine in the terrain that they most likely would be playing in, which is the Gibbering Dome. That's my uh, terrain set that I have. 
So as opposed to everybody else, I didn't use any GW Paint or any GW Hobby product. Uh, I used expanded PVC and then cut a couple of grooves into them to represent the tiling that's on the floor of my basing set and then spray paints to mimic the texture that I have on the basing itself. So all my bases are actually completely flat, but they the bases themselves are twice as thick as a normal miniature. So um, I just used a carving tool. So I used a gouge is what it's called. It's a wood carving tool to carve in those distinctions, those uh, grout lines, basically. And that's how I did my bases. Very cool. Very cool. Now, I struggled with mine. I have uh, a few materials that I love to use. and I'm experimenting more with how they all combine and then how to paint them to make them feel different. Um, in this case... I didn't use any sand, which I uh, or 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 rock or grout or what am I talking about grit, um, which I usually like to do in some amount because you know it just adds variation. So this time, uh, one of my favorite materials to use is um, wood filler, um, and the reason I like wood filler specifically, there's some um, uh, what is this called plastic wood, which is by DAP. Um, I don't know if you can get that everywhere in the world, but uh, it's has a bit of a plastic feel to it. Um, and when it is, it does take water, it comes pretty moist and, and like, um, I'm trying to liken it to kind of a dough or that sort of thing. But when, when I put it on my bases, um, I can, I can clump it up. I can make, um, big mounds of it and it will settle. And so I can, I, I really found it first when I started doing my desert bases and I could make it feel like dunes and, and I could f make it feel like, you know, like I could drag it up against a, a vertical surface to make it feel like it was kind of like a drift, like a snow drift or a, a sand drift. Um, and so I could do some cooler stuff with it that I really enjoyed. Um, and then, uh, what I, I often coat it with, uh, one layer or two of, watered down PVA glue or white glue to give it a little bit of a sealant and to kind of cover it and coat it. And in this case, I used um, the Agrellin Earth, which is Games Workshop's uh, texture paint that does the crack, uh, crackling, like uh, uh, you were talking about pavement. Um, and there's there's a whole line of really cool things. They have a, a you know a line of texture paints that let you kind of have like the really uh, gravelly ground or the crackle, um, et cetera. And I do this in parts. So I kind of have a mixture of kind of dunes or, or in this case, I just wanted more elevation and dips and rises and dips in the, in the texture. And then having part of that be the crackling. Um, so it just kind of created some differences there. Um, I wasn't at first, again, I wasn't sure if I was going to stick to my desert cause it's easy for me to do. But in the end, um, before I put those things down, I try and add some bits and I actually like to grow in, not in every case, but in this case, I glued all my models down to the base first. Um, sometimes you can f do your bases separate and then you might, uh, glue your model onto the base or you would, uh, pin it to the base. So you would drill a hole in the foot, add a small pin, drill a hole in the base and you stick the pin through. Um, glue it down and it just secures the two together very easily. In this case, 
the one reason to glue uh, models to the base first is that I've got a couple of models that have like something they're standing on or they have a foot on, so that like a skull or a piece of masonry or something like that. And if I put that on first, then my um, wood putty can go up over it or up against it, um, and and I can sink their feet into the, the the space as well. So if I want it to look like their foot is in the mud or the the their movement has shifted the the earth under their feet, I can do that a bit. Um, so you don't always want to glue the model to the base first and then do basing. Sometimes you want to do the basing separate and then glue, put the model on, pin it, or glue it. Um, the other thing is that the the wood filler is not a good surface to glue models onto it will tear things and now i'm trying to figure out how to kind of finish it off with uh you know some greens and browns some some dry brushing um adding some uh, other detritus and sticks and and that sort of stuff to make it feel like a little bit more of a a wooded or not quite maybe kind of a foresty undergrowth kind of setting without being jungle or anything like that so even if you're using little bits of plastic glued down, a little bit of wood filler that's brown, some you know rocks and, and sand, which are another color, use all the different things that you can put on there. Um, make it feel a little bit unique, a little asymmetrical, and then we can work on it with uh, paint to bring it all together. Um, and I liked your tips, uh, Paven, in terms of that contrast. All right, we're going to jump right into some basics on getting started in painting. First thing you're going to want to do once your model's assembled is prime it. And now I'm saying this is I do think it's a good idea to prime. Um, I don't always prime because it's uh, not the end of the world if you don't. But if you want to take a rattle can, um, often people will prime in a black or a white. Um, I prefer white because I use a lot of bright colors so they stand out or I, I don't have to paint them as many layers over white as I do over black. I pick a color scheme, so that's kind of the next part is trying to figure out what things to go together, and we'll, we can might maybe talk a little bit about color schemes and our struggles there. We paint the base as well as the model itself. Once we do a base coat of paint, so you maybe you pick your color of, uh, for the skin tone, you pick your color for weapons, you pick your color for cloth, you pick your color for fur, and you paint those on, um, then you might want to do a, a wash, which is often kind of a watered-down pigment or a, a, something that flows a little bit more into the recesses and and uh, lets you kind of hit the shadows. Or you might do a glaze, which can tint or color uh, something. So if you have a base coat of one color and use a glaze, it can change that color. Um, and then uh, you might end your paint with a highlight, where you would take a, a smaller brush uh, with a uh, finer tip and uh, use brighter and brighter paint up into just the tips and the highest points of your model uh, to kind of really highlight those things. Those are the kind of prime uh, base color wash and highlight. A little flippant because those of you listening may feel like that's a daunting task. Um, But why don't we talk a little bit about our experience uh, and ways that we deviate or ways that we um, kind of like to paint or ways that we I, I don't know, get through our paint jobs where we struggle with them or what we enjoy the most about them. Uh, Josh, um, what's, what's, do you deviate from that, uh, that kind of five step process at all? Um, do you have anything that you spend more time on or less time on or just do differently? So, uh, just to point out a few things since contrast paints have entered our world in the last several months, 
is um, using lighter color primers, you know, like the Wraith Bone or the Gray Seer Gray, uh, does help with the contrast paints if, if people are using those. And the contrast paint, paint tends to combine a base paint and a wash, so it kind of gives you a highlight as well as the shading and some other things as well without requiring some of the steps. I haven't used them a lot myself yet, but um, I know a lot of people who have, and it has sped up the, the painting process for them. And it can kind of do that base shading and highlighting steps all in, in one or two steps, which is which is can be very handy for some people. Um, I, I'll go back and, and say for you know my my biggest struggle with painting is coming up with the color schemes, and, and I've alluded to that before in this podcast. Is is I do a lot of kind of storyboarding or browsing lots of images, and you know trying to figure out okay where are they from, what are they like, where are they going, what are their motivations, and then coming up with color schemes that I I think are interesting or or that I can accomplish, you know, that I have the technical ability to attempt. <laughs> so, yeah. so, um, and once I kind of work that out, then, then I can get moving and painting the rest of the, the war band or the army or whatever else. But, uh, but I do spend uh, uh, probably too much time um, in that storyboarding, figuring out all of that information and piling hundreds of thousands of, of images in my mind and okay, okay, what can I put together? What, and then narrowing it down to something that I can work with. But then I then I usually kind of go with through the the base highlighting, you know, use washes and shades, and I do a little bit of dry brushing and some other things as well, and uh, working a little bit more on, um, you know, some freehanding of the patterns or designs just to add a little bit more element to to different things. And lately, I've been uh, took a painting class and been experimenting with different types of color combinations and how to use that to to bring out a theme or a, or or draw the eye to certain places. And so I'm learning how to use those kind of particular tools as well. Nice, nice. Um, Pavend, what kind of uh, you know painting a regiment or a kind of uh, I don't know methodology do you use? Is there is there anything outside of the kind of what we talked about that? that you like to deviate to or some reliable things that, that you always go to? So where I am on my painting journey right now is there's a couple things that I'm working on. One is that uh, I've recently, I guess maybe in the last six months, started to use a wet palette. And that's really helped me uh, with blending paints and keeping the right consistency of paints. And so that was a big breakthrough in my painting that happened uh, somewhat recently. I've also really tried to work on throughput and how much stuff I can get done in a session. Uh, I realize that a lot of the times I'm painting stuff that's just going to be for an army and it doesn't need to be that good. Or if I like skip a number of steps, like nobody notices, I don't even notice anymore after a day. Like I'm not really getting a lot of bang for the buck on like, you know, this line trooper. So I don't know how much better I'm getting, but I'm getting a little faster and that's really satisfying. <laughs> or like, you know, figuring out like why you're painting and what you're painting for. Like, especially terrain, I'm really trying not to do any like edge highlighting. Um, just trying to stick with washes and dry brushes, which are like significantly faster than other methods of painting. Oh, that's, that's, that's very good tips. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Paul, you've been painting for a long time. Yep. How has, how has your painting changed over the, the years of, uh, of putting miniatures on the table? Um, well, I, I think I'd like to put a caveat in of if this is your first set, if this is your first models you're picking up, just find some paint and put it on the model and see how much you like it, right? Like, you can always do better. There's always things that you want to improve on. 
So if you're not, if you're worried about putting paint on a model, it's just a model. So go ahead and just slap some paint on and see how you enjoy it. If you are like, I think this looks terrible, ask for feedback, right? Um, with that being said, uh, with the Warcry Warbands, it's actually been pretty easy for me to figure out my color schemes because they have such specific design cues that tie them together. As opposed to painting an Age of Sigmar army, which is what most of my experience has been or Warhammer Fantasy, you have to really figure out how to make colors tie in some disparate design elements. But with Corvus Cabal, right, everything has the same kind of pants, the same kind of feathers, the same kind of weapons, right? Same kind of skin. So because all of those parts of the model are designed to be identical, it made it really easy for me to be able to change my color scheme or to come up with one that really worked well for me. And so the way that it changed for this one is I literally just did it on fly. I didn't do a test model. I just started putting paint on the model. And I was like, I know I want the feathers to be this kind of like iridescent purple blue thing. So I made them look like that. And then I was like, okay, well, let's do some leather on the, the cloth and see how that works. And that worked out pretty well. And then I wanted to do some yellow on the beak because they look like bird beaks to me. And then when I looked at that, I was like, oh, I was going to do this kind of darker skin tone, but decided to go with lighter skin tone just based on the cool tones of the rest of the model. So for me, it was just looking at it and saying, well, what do I think would work best next? And once I did basically a paint by color, right, of the design elements, everything just kind of fell into place. So it was fun. Nice, nice. Yeah, I I tend to, um, in terms of color palette, and I think that I think you're right, both of you guys talked about like, or everybody's talked about is like that, that paint scheme can often be the thing that's blocking us not knowing what we want to paint. Um, some things that I, I often limit myself to, and sometimes I break out of it, but they help me kind of get to my point is that I try and limit myself to three colors, three primary kind of elements. And that might be what's um, a cloth, a skin and a highlight. Like what's your accent color, the thing that you want to pop. Um, so, uh, you know, and I often try and pick, a, a, a pop color that I've not used on an army before. So some of that is because I want this, you know, my next army to look different than my last army. Um, the opposite is if I need something to tie in, then I want to keep those elements. Right. Um, but if I want to make sure it looks different, um, and, and so in that way I'm, I'm, often just trying to challenge myself to do something a little bit different, um, to, to, you know, try something new, learn something new. Um, and the reason I kind of, you pick those maybe three colors to work with is that, um, it lets, lets you, um, more easily figure out where to put those colors on a model. Um, sometimes that if you have too many colors and if you're not, if you're not comfortable with, I'm not very strong in color theory. I have some intuition on it and I've taken, you know, I took some art classes, so I have some basic understanding, but sometimes that the fewer colors you use, the, the less you have to try and make them all work together. If that makes sense. That being said, if you can get 
some good ideas on color theory, they can help you make everything just look better, right? Um, and so that's kind of for me. It's always I only I want I want a good general palette that works together, and I want something that that pops really good on top of that. So for instance, my Untamed Beast this is the first army I've worked with orange, um, and trying to come up with an uh, you know an orange that has a lot of depth. Um, and, uh, yeah, kind of looks, looks somewhat natural, but probably not natural at all. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's the chaos, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. Points, it's natural. Yeah. They, they sold their soul for a really good orange dye. Um, <laughs> uh, so, I, so one of the things I talk about a little bit is, is yeah, I, I often will just take one of your models, take your your planes runner and I'll just start painting it. And I start with not my hero. Uh, well, I take this back. Actually, I was actually thinking about this the other day with war cry. Maybe it's a little bit different, but often for my war bands uh, or my armies, I will paint my hero first. Um, and maybe that's hard. You know, I'm, maybe I have a little bit more confidence in my paint scheme sometimes so I can do that. But sometimes I'm trying to, fully realize who my hero is first so I can better understand maybe how I paint the rest of my army to follow them, if that makes sense. Um, and so, and sometimes having somebody, uh, that hero or that leader painted kind of gives me the kind of idea that, okay, now I got to, that person's got to recruit now. Uh, you know, so who's going to follow an unpainted model? No one. Uh, So, so sometimes starting with the one that's the coolest and most interesting, but sometimes, like you said, if you want to take a planes runner and paint it and just experiment, uh, and I ended up doing that with my basing is I painted four over five of them, different, different colors to see what I liked the best. And I ended up going with none of those. Um, (laughs) but it, but sometimes you just got to get the ideas out and, and see what it looks like before you can decide that it's not right. You know, um, and, and not being afraid. Um, there, there is also, I I guess there's a number of, of tools like one's called simple green, one's called purple power. These are degreasing, um, uh, liquids, chemicals that you can find at the hardware store or your auto store. And they will take the paint right off, uh, your model and give you a, uh, you know, a brand new clean start. Um, if you've, I don't know that they'll always take primer off. They do. Um, the, uh, using an old toothbrush helps, but the, but they do take those off. That can be great. My issue with priming has always been cold weather or not feeling comfortable it, with my how I deal with humidity um, in, in Wisconsin. In the past year, I've done a ton more priming with rattle cans. And mostly what I do is I just make sure that it's kind of 70, 70% humidity or below. Uh, and uh, I'll go outside on a nice day and... Even if it's chilly, if it's chilly out, I'll just make sure that my my primer has been inside and my model has been inside, and I'll I'll take it out. Um, but mostly it's that humidity point that I try and figure out because uh, I just had a bad experience with it early on, and I was like, oh, I can't do this, so I kind of stopped priming for a long time. I have had very little issue not priming models with paint coming off or anything like that. So, yeah. to echo your point, Eric, I I do the exact same thing, just about humidity. Yeah. Like the only time I've been burned is when I was like super humid day and then all my models were dusted. Yeah. 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 The so. other thing is you can do is you can use brush on primer because yep. they do sell brush on primer and then you just eliminate the whole humidity, 
uh, rattle can completely. Um, I don't <laughs> think it's necessary for plastic miniatures like it was for metal miniatures back in the day where you really needed a primer. I think the plastics yeah. adhere to the paint well enough. I, I do agree, but it does make the paint flow differently. And that can and be also, harder. Yeah, and also paint is translucent. And so like having a uniform primer helps like what color your, your model is going to be. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, <laughs> also, I've also found that once I get a wash on my model, that wash often does a little bit of sealing of the things, of the paint that's underneath it. Uh, but it can also be really good if you're going to be handling your models a lot. And again, I think this, uh, as Paven was just saying, uh, it's a little less the case with plastic. But you can do a seal coat, um, a final coat of tester's dull coat or something like that to cover it, protect it. There's lots of different things to do with paint. At the end of the day, as again, just to echo, there's not a wrong thing to do if you love it. Uh, my number one, I, and I apologize, my number one tip for paint that you're going to like is work on uh, your accuracy and uh, making sure that you block really well. So if you can make sure that you're separate, you know, you get get a nice brush that's going to let you differentiate that skin from that uh, that cloth wrapping, that uh, you don't get a lot of paint overlapping on materials, right? Um, if you can keep those things separated, it's, it's basically like if you can color in the lines and work mm-hmm. on that accuracy, you're that's that's ninety percent of a good looking model to me, is that it's blocked out well. Yeah, and uh, yeah, get a, get yourself a good brush and take care of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing would be is that don't be afraid to dry brush something. Don't be afraid to wash or glaze. Like every technique that you see online is a completely viable technique. Don't let people tell you, oh, you can't use dry brushing because that's not really brushing or over brushing or any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Just have fun, uh, experiment, and enjoy the process. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you find out uh, you try a technique and you get something you completely didn't expect, but it's awesome. Yeah, so definitely. Absolutely. All right. Why don't we take another break? And when we come back, we're going to talk about terrain and the the battlefields that we're playing on. Uh, We're going to talk about the, the stuff that you can get off the shelves and scratch building. So we'll see you in a minute. The Mortal Realms is running our first Warcry narrative event on Saturday, November 16th in Madison, Wisconsin. It's titled The Plunging Spires. It's a tight 16-player four-game map campaign with random tables and an unreplenishable roster. If you're in the Midwest and thinking of coming, registration will open soon. If not, we'll have lots to talk about in future episodes on Dogs of Warcry. More info at themortalrealms.com. Welcome back. Now we've talked about the models and the the heroes, the fighters that are playing in our games and um, uh, telling our stories. Now let's talk about the battlefields that they play on, how we get them to the table, how we paint them up, customize them, uh, and and kind of create everything from what they they show us uh, in the boxes to something out of our own imaginations. So let's start with kind of maybe choosing where you want to play or, or choosing the kind of battlefield. Um, Josh, t- let's talk about the, the Ravaged Lands uh, and the selections and the options there. What have you enjoyed building? Uh, so obviously, I got you know the train in the starter box. I think that's a, a great 
kit. It's got a wide variety of, you know, old Azerite ruins and, you know, spiky wooden structures that are chaos oriented. And so that, that's definitely a fun mix. And I built that just like, you know, they instructed uh, that way I could use it for all the different scenarios. And, and then I picked up the shattered storm vault kit because I did not have any of those new ruin sets. And I've really enjoyed that. It's, it's been really an interesting um, kind of a, not really an opposite type of, you know, ravaged land than, than the starter box terrain. But I was able to magnetize it so I could move things around and structure it in different ways. And I saw, you know, some uh, some information from the designer about different ways that people have put multiples of those kits together. And so I'm actually excited about, you know, collecting more of that type of set so I can make larger structures in the future. So I'm kind of excited about that and just working on ideas for, okay, where are these? And how do I want to paint them up? So. Yeah, the, there's a real um, kind of ziggurat possibilities with it, um, you know, getting mm-hmm. taller and taller and having the steps climbing up to it, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that one's that one's a, a really great pick. Um, Paven, you talked to, you've you've kind of put the what's it called the defiled ruins, the Azerite ruins. What drew you to that um, ravaged lands kit? I liked it the most out of the three. Uh, <laughs> It felt like it had a lot of like a lot of ways you could take it because it was, I wouldn't say basic, but it was it was um, kind of a, almost a clean slate or a, a blank canvas for me to like kind of take it in whatever direction I wanted to take it. Um, I also just really wanted a ravaged land set so I could play Warcry in my own house and like bring it show it to my friends and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I'm not quite all the way there with my final vision for the set i was i'm really leaning towards making it a defiled by goblins or defiled by grots ruins where mm. they've come through and they've set up shop in this old azurite town or azurite um uh, uh, temple or something along these lines and they've solely been like kind of just their their nastiness have seeped through and now there's mushrooms popping up and different you know cages and spikes kind of coming out of these uh what were you know very nice and kind of noble buildings that's awesome and and yeah, yeah i mean ha- having a vision to take what's in the box and then make it lived in um and i i have the azurite ruin set townscape or something like that and it has some of those similar pieces um yeah the thing that came to mind was these are ruins but who's like squatted here and what have they left behind um, and whether that be markings or, you know, a last will and testament or, you know, a treasure map or a, a smoldering fire or, you know, something like that. There's a lot of fun in taking those and just adding those elements that make it feel lived in. Um, Paul, you had the mausoleum um, or yep. what is the what is it called in the Ravaged Lands? Corpse Rack Mausoleum, I think. Yes, that one. <laughs> and you've had those those pieces from its previous iterations, but uh, what kind of inspired you to use that and how have you incorporated it? Well, uh, I was inspired to use it because I already owned it. Um, <laughs> and, and the way that I've incorporated it is just, it, it, it really works well with my existing terrain set as things that can just help to define some borders and really add in a little bit more of an AOS feel to the the kind of scratch built stuff that I have. Um, one of the things that really kind of sold it and made it look particular to me is that I've cut the fences from the mausoleum so that they're in two inch sections. And then I can put those fences on the steps that I built. 
And so it actually makes them kind of one piece of terrain as opposed to two in my mind. So it really helps to sell the AOS look in the scratch build that I've done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely find myself drawn to, even when I'm scratch building, wanting to put um, you know manufactured GW bits on things to make it feel a little bit more um, designed or... I think that's a hard thing to do. Uh, GW does such a great job of designing the stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so many details. It's a little hard to scratch build and be like, this is this is good enough to put on the table with that. So Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So those are some of the Ravaged Lands, and it, it does look like that's something that's going to keep coming out. Hopefully the core set um, stuff comes out in more Ravaged Lands. We've got the... Um, the ruined church or a ruined cathedral that's uh, coming out with some of those that has the bell tower and a few things. Um, so then the next thing I want to talk about is other AOS terrain. So when Age of Sigmar came out, it did come out with a few things that were new and unique um, and we hadn't seen before. The plastic was a little bit different. It's kind of an older manufacturer um, didn't have the same impact that maybe that the Warcry terrain has had or some of the more recent um, Age of Sigmar terrain pieces that go along with the armies. What are some of the AOS terrain pieces that have really jumped out to you guys or have you started incorporating into your Warcry uh, tables? Paul, have you had any other AOS terrain pieces that have made its way into your Warcry sets? Oh, for sure. Uh, the first game that I played, uh, part of the campaign, was the Age of Sigmar uh, Observatory set. Um, I'm having a hard time locating the name of that. It's the worst part of Citadel. That's correct. So the first game that I played in our campaign was actually using the War Scryer Citadel, which is an amazing terrain piece. And it was one of those pieces where I always felt sad when I was looking at it, because in an Age of Sigmar game, it really is just kind of a line-of-sight blocking piece of terrain, even though it had all these gorgeous buildings and observatories and everything. And I played against Howard, and it was just... Uh, we got a couple of little sticky markers, and we were just putting our models on every facet of that piece of terrain. We basically both just agreed... This is a place where your model can stand. This is a place where your model can stand. So some of them are on the skull rock, and some of them are up on the observatory, and some of them are on the platform walkways. It was just such an incredible, like, visceral sensation of the way the rules were working. It really sold the whole rule set to me, to be honest. It just looked amazing. Awesome. Uh, Josh, have you? are there Age of Sigmar train pieces that you think fit really well into Warcry, or there's some that, that you've thought were going to and didn't work as well? Well, I think, um, you know, there are some of the ones that I don't own them yet, but uh, like the Oculum and the Ophidian Archway, there's a lot of really unique, flavorful pieces of terrain there that I think you could definitely incorporate, especially with some of the Azerite ruins to make it look like an older structure. And, you know, maybe it's one of the abandoned cities and they're exploring ruins, or you know. So I definitely, you know, there's like the Mage Rot Throne, which can make a really cool campaign or quest centerpiece for a particular project so i definitely think there's terrain elements that you can pull and, and, and incorporate because i you know it's not, they're not quite as um they're not designed to be put together in quite the same way as some of the newer kits but i think they have their own character and they can definitely fit into a theme that you're working with and and worked with the other kids yeah yeah um 
one of the things that I saw that I really enjoyed was, or and I've, I think it might be Vint from our local store who's talked about this, but I can't remember. Um, taking the new trees, the new Wildwoods that came out with the Sylvaneth release that have, um, they have quite a few kind of the leaves as leaves as platforms um, mm-hmm. and building kind of an Ewok village. <laughs> uh, <laughs> awesome. So you have, have enough, uh, you know, trees with some different heights and being able to climb up those trees, but then have walkways between them and maybe platforms uh, around the trunk of the tree, etc. cetera. Um, and so I think, you know, even with some not doing as much building, it seems like they could be really interesting for platforms. And uh, if you had a dense amount of them, you could even just jump from tree to tree. Um, so those ones seemed like they could be an interesting, even scattered into other things. Um, uh, and I think, yeah, there's, there were a few pieces that had platforms on them in the past. Um, the dragon fate Deus is another one that was a super yep. interesting piece, um, that had, um, some ability to move inside of it, but you couldn't fit a whole unit in there, um, or on top of it. So, you know, putting a, but in Warcry, you just need a one, one model or a couple models to go through there. Um, and it'd be perfect. Um, so yeah, it, there's, there's definitely some, some potential in the AOS terrain that's been, you know, come before, uh, you know, realm gates and all that kind of stuff. Um, but those are a little bit more mix, mix and match and, and, you know, kind of piece them together. I actually, um, the piece that I really like using is the, uh, penumbral engine from the, um, soul wars, mm-hmm. uh, forbidden, or which box was that? The soul wars, that was the, in forbidden power, the forbidden power box. And, um, and it's, it's nice that it has kind of, it's this ball of, 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 um, circular, you know, iron wrought. Uh, pieces and then it's got kind of a, a ring that goes around it uh, mm-hmm. horizontally and that's actually pretty good size for putting models on it and they can walk around it and I believe it's approximately three inches um, but now you know obviously you round up but uh, you know if you stick that in the middle and you have platforms all around it you can easily jump onto that and circumvent it um, and all that kind of stuff so um it's an interesting piece. I didn't think that would apply, but it certainly does. Um, one of the ones I, f- I forgot to mention, I'm working with uh, Aaron from uh, the Mortal Realms crew on his um, chaos. Uh, what is the chaos castle stuff? Dreadfort. The Dreadfort, Dreadfort stuff. Um, and uh, having to model or change some things a little bit so that it's not just like a corridor of walkways and stuff, uh, that there's some ways to access that walkway from the sides. Um, but working with that stuff to try and make that an interesting place to, to battle and, and jump around. So um, there's, there is definitely a lot of potential in past uh, AOS terrain pieces that, you know, some of them aren't available any longer, um, but maybe in the future they will be through the ravaged lands. Uh, so we'll see. Well, um, I've got, I've got a couple of uh, off the wall ideas here actually as well. Yeah. If you use the Arachnorok Howda. Yeah, that makes some amazing walkways if you combine that with the the new wildwood or just the old trees as well, um, because they do have a rounded uh, walkway that can allow you to do some really interesting stuff. Absolutely. Um, and the other kit that really um, would allow you to do some interesting things as well is the second on kit, um, because wow. it also has that platform uh, with the engine of the gods on it as well. Very so. Cool. 
there are some bits floating around in just the standard Age of Sigmar models that can really add some interesting flavor and definition to your Warcry battles as well. Very cool. Very cool. Not to mention all the uh, you know the living spells, so you know like the beastmen totems and the the yep. flying trees, and you know they could all you could all use them in certain you know terrain and the eight points definitely. Mm-hmm. There's definitely an aspect of that, um, you know, uh, whether that be um, as I talked about getting the the herdstone as just a terrain piece or or piece like that my untamed beasts have erected this totem to defile the place that they've they've come to um but yeah the you know that flying tree could certainly be um a entity that you have to fight or Mm -hmm. you know those sorts of things so um or just something that behaves a certain way on the table um let's talk a little bit uh beyond uh games workshop things to um, the different sources of kind of other places to, to source terrain to kind of fulfill our vision um one of the places that, uh, you know, Josh, you've been playing in and we've seen a lot of people playing in online is 3D printing. Um, what have you found there? What have you been scouring and think has potential uh, from that resource? Uh, well, you know, in the in the generic realm, like Thingiverse or other, or other sites like that, there are crazy number of files for dungeons, towers, you know, structures, all sorts of interesting terrain elements and there are i don't i don't know how many companies that have made their own designs and either through kickstarter or on their website you can buy the files or you can buy the the printed models from them you know in a wide range of those are like elven themed terrain or dwarven themed terrain or chaos demon themed terrain you know so there's there's really you know the sky is the limit and it, it's kind of a uh, crazy to find out what's out there so it's more what kind of theme are you thinking about? What kind of structure do you need? And then trying to figure out, okay, if I if I had this, you know, how do my models get on it? And how does it interact with the rest of the terrain? When would I use it? And then, you know, and working through some of those visualizing ideas in terms of how it fits and how best to utilize it so you have a fun game. So that's cool. Um, are you familiar with uh, Dark Fantastic or Fantasy Mills? Dark Fantastic Mills is that it? Yep. Yeah. Um, out of the Mills. UK. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they. Um, I've I've picked up a couple of pieces from them uh, for Realm Gates, etc. But I believe that they're about to either uh, debut or kickstart um, a new set of dwarven themed terrain pieces that seem to act more like uh, a lot of like internal mountainous walkways and that sort of thing. Um, cool. So it looks like there's a lot of levels to be built, a lot of pillars, a lot of that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's certainly, if you're looking for something that's themed, there's a couple of these lo- places that have kind of these worlds that they've created or, or you know, if you put all these pieces together, create uh, an environment for a board, uh, probably for very little because of the size of the boards we're trying to cover. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's uh, Dark Fantasy Mills has a lot of cool stuff for a lot of different um, kind of games, workshop games and other games that do skirmish, et cetera. Um, any other... Uh, kind of places or resources that that people should check out if they're looking at 3d printing either for files or for the kind of finished product uh there are 
like I said, there are so many companies that I don't remember the names of them all, so I, I hesitate <laughs> to say. If you're printing yourself uh, Thingiverse or other um, you know, generic or, I guess, free printing sites where you just go and you find the files and you can print them yourself are a great resource. But there are, yeah, there are a huge number of different people who either print you know, to give it to you or they'll sell the files so you can also print it or vice versa. And it can range from like caves to mushroom forests to, you know, ethnic races, you know, terrain sets and all, all sorts of things. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. I, I would also just say, take a look at Kickstarter, right? Yep. Yeah. If you just look at Kickstarter for 3D printed terrain, you're going to have links to companies that have, you know, go for the ones that succeeded, not for the ones that failed. But you're going to have a lot of access to some interesting designs. And, you know, it is going to cost you some money. But you can wow. see where the companies are coming from. That reminds me, I've got to, I've got to recall there was a, a Kickstarter for a company that did like a full-color cardstock terrain uh, in a kind of a fantasy uh, dungeon setting that I should take a look at or try and find. Um, another material that I've used some uh, is MDF. Uh, and I'm uh, just to preface this, I'm going to talk about a company called War Cradle because they sent me some things um, to to realize a, a board that I'll talk about later. Um, but I've I've worked with uh, companies like Foreground, uh, which have some fantasy village um, kind of stucco homes, Tudor style homes, etc. I've I've looked and scoured the web for different MDF suppliers. And one of the things that can often be a kind of a negative for me is that there's not enough detail. So, um, for instance, so like, you know, we were just talking about that, Paul, where it's hard to match up a low detail thing or a two dimensional detail thing, even if there's engravings with the level of detail that we're used to in Warhammer terrain or Games Workshop terrain. Two things I'm loving about this War Cradle stuff is that they've somehow managed to create a lot of visual interest and detail without it being a ton of depth for so for instance the roofing has uh, a number of layers of tile but then like there's holes so you just see kind of like the um the lattice underneath it and so that just adds another visual interesting texture um they've also kind of modeled the um the shapes of the different structures to have bows and bends and leans in them uh, so they're not perfectly vertical they're not you know uh, exactly straight like you'd think um and their their walkways and platforms have you know the boards coming off the edge are varied in their length so you've got just different silhouettes that come through um the other thing i've loved and uh, that can be hard with um mdf terrain is they come in sprues like they've been cut but when you go to pop them off sometimes it can be easy to break them if you don't use a an exacto to really kind of cut those joins and kind of like clean finish that cut so they pop off real clean um i have not had any issues with that and some of this stuff is just kind of falls out um of the of the sprue which is fantastic for kind of just not worrying about breaking things or you know tearing things in half mm -hmm. the nice things about working with mdf is that you can use any glue you can use um, super glue for a quick bond on something you can use um, a PVA or a, a wood glue, which is also a type of PVA glue. And those are really great if you water them down a little bit because that will seep into the MDF and create a really strong bond with uh, the, the pieces that you're using. 
you know, wood glue, PVA glue is super strong in those with these kind of materials, even more so than with plastic and grains and, and the things we do on our bases. Um, the thing I'm, I haven't done enough with is painting MDF terrain. Um, some of the foreground stuff has been, is pre-painted or pre-colored. It's not very interesting in terms of its coloration. Um, the war cradle stuff is just your brown with, you know, the, the laser cut details, et cetera. Um, I have seen some other YouTube uh, channels show like the painted versions of this and it looks fantastic, but you may do, you still may use, need to put some texture on it. So you could use some of these um, texture paints, um, you know, a grill and earth for some cracks or, um, you know, Mars iron earth for, you know, more grit and that sort of stuff. You can add different coloration for weathering and that sort of stuff. So there's a lot of things you can do with it. Um, and it, it really just kind of gives you the bones for all that kind of stuff. Plus, I mean, just the cool shapes and, and interesting things. So MDF is definitely, uh, something I'm excited to do more with to create some of these worlds that we're imagining. Games Workshop came out with the starter box of terrain, which can also kind of uh, work with the ravaged land terrain. You can combine those things. So those are some interesting things. Sometimes you can put plastic and, and the MDF and those sorts of things together. It's use your imagination, put together what you want. Um, but then we get into scratch building. Uh, Josh, you've probably done the most of any of us. Uh, well, I, I, I will talk a little bit more about that a little bit because I know everyone's had their own kind of uh, hand in that pie. But what are some of the materials that somebody might think about using if they're going to build it from scratch? Um, wh- wh- where can they look? Um, I think, you know, some of the materials I started with are, you know, just cardboard, uh, styrofoam, you know, it's packing styrofoam. If you purchase the, you know, a TV, it comes with styrofoam around it to keep it safe. You know, that stuff is great for, you know, just starting out, making some basic structures. Um, there are lots of things in the hardware store that you can just walk around and see, you know, and it's just like, oh, wow, you know, I can maybe use something like that. And, you know, and actually one of the downsides is you start looking at all these refuse and trash and things everywhere else and go oh i could make that into you know something like this so it can be an addictive problem so you gotta be careful with it but um but i I often use styrofoam especially you know the sheet insulation that you can get at a hardware store Um, a lot of uh, uh craft stores will have balsa wood or um some other types of wood that are easy to cut and easy to shape you can buy plastic card, which is great. Um, you know, Paul uses something that's much stronger, but plastic card can comes in a variety of sizes and shapes. You can use for you know fantasy or futuristic types of games, and um, and then you know just like you said, some of the textures, paints, you know, some small plastic bits and you know, or things like that to create some additional details. And as you're working on a project, you might find something that fits that appropriate theme. But but definitely styrofoam and wood are, are great places to start. Um, I've discovered over a bit of time that I really dislike working with styrofoam. Uh, <laughs> it, it can become anything. And there's some people I've seen people take like insulation foam and turn it into crown molding, um, and elaborate like scroll work that looks like it was made out of stone to do refurbishment in old theaters, right? Like mm-hmm. you can do some really fine art with it. Um, I cannot do basic shape sometimes with it. Um, and I think some of it's with, you know, it's using the right tools. Um, and I don't mean that to discourage anybody from trying because it's a very inexpensive material. Um, I, I think my other thing is getting it home from the hardware store can be tough. So if you, <laughs> yes. if you can get it in small sheets or get it cut there and then bring it home in your vehicle. Um, but 
it, it can take, you know, it will cut with an, with a, a saw or a knife, uh, you know, like a, a box cutter. Mm-hmm. So it, it can cut easy, but to, to, to finesse it and shape it and that sort of stuff takes, can take some other tools or some other work, um, and some other mess. So, um, when we were playing Necromunda and trying to source some stuff for that, I was always looking for, uh, packaging and weird box shapes and that sort of thing. Um, and I have found some interesting, you know, things that came from, like there's some packing material that's made of paper, um, that's kind of like molded and shaped to your technology or something like that. And sometimes they're organic enough to pass for something. So that's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, so found objects and, and found pieces. Um, and I, you know, one of the things, uh, people will make, uh, trees out of, uh, kind of winding wire together and then branching it out and covering it in, uh, you know, plaster or, um, milliput or something like that. And so if you were interested in making like a, a tree city type of thing, you could do all of that from scratch too, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't need to buy the games workshop plastic kits. Um, there's lots of tutorials on YouTube for building this stuff from scratch, cardboard, whatever, uh, stuff around the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be a really cheap way to get started with Warcry terrain and build the thing that's in your imagination that you can't get off the shelf. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well that let's talking of speaking of that imagination, uh, why don't we kind of just go around the circle? Uh, Paul, since you've probably created the biggest, uh, kind of terrain set, as you've mentioned a few times, the gibbering dome, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you created it, what your concept was, using the material and maybe where you're going with it next. And maybe you can, uh, there's so much that you could probably tell us on that, uh, but but maybe you give us a high level (laughs) of it. uh, And then maybe we can explore it down more detail down the road. Uh, So the basic idea is just, um, I wanted to make a terrain set based on an indoor space. Um, The indoor space was based on our state capital. I, I just enjoy the idea of being able to have a fantasy battle within a real-world space. And the, the materials that I used for that were expanded PVC. Um, so this is something you can get from a plastics factory. Uh, you can also get it online, but if you get it from a plastics factory, hopefully you'll be able to get a little bit of a better deal on it. Um, and the other kind of like major resource for me was cake decorating pillars. Um, this was actually something that you can see in more detail as well on Warhammer Community because they did a little article um, about the scenery that's in Cities of Sigmar. And they were talking about using cake pillars for the walls of Hammer Hall and then using expanded PVC for the gates of the living city. So this is a, um, this is a cool material that really allows you to be able to do kind of anything that you want to. And when you buy it in bulk, it can be some really cheap um, supply as well. So what I have done in the past is made uh, basically a bunch of volumes that allow me to recreate this indoor space. And what I'm working on now is, um, especially with Cities of Sigmar, you see a lot of these canals in the background. They're kind of talking about how they have these... um, the sluices that allow lava in for Hammerhall or for Aquagaranas to the other side, to the living city. 
And I would like to be able to incorporate some of that into the terrain that I'm building. So maybe some aqueducts uh, and also in the cities themselves, they have a lot of domes as well. So working out trying to make that into my terrain too. When you talk about volumes, um, just you know, real quick, you t- you know, you created um, a number of sections. So a rectangular cu- uh, box, um, mm-hmm. some uh, of different sizes, some large ones. You created um, some flat spaces that could go on top of those. So if you set a number of those boxes around, that could create a larger space. Um, mm-hmm. You created some stair templates that you've so you created a number of them that fit that same height width um, you know rise and run uh, formula and um, and then you've created a number of uh, different shaped kind of cubes that have arch three arches cut into them uh, to mm-hmm. create another uh, type of detail um, and uh, you know in some of these uh, what I loved about the arches specifically is that you haven't gone in and, and created um, a very deep like stone pillar or anything to that effect, yeah. but you've done enough to where you look at it from a foot away uh, or you know two feet away, and it just feels like you've it. It just adds so much. I remember seeing those those archways for the first time, and they're very simple in their design, but they add so much dynamics to the view, the vision of the whole table, mm-hmm. um, and and so simple things like that. So what kind of gave you the idea to to kind of to keep your surfaces a very they're very uh, your volumes like you said are three dimensional but a lot of your detail mm-hmm. is fairly two dimensional and fairly um, kind of light on detail but you know I guess talk to the, f- the fact that the scale that you've created on why did you create it to that scale um, and like Legos <laughs> yeah. Uh, so a lot of it has, has to do with the simple fact that I need to keep it in my house and there's only so many places that I can put a bunch of terrain that my wife will be okay with. <laughs> uh, so for me, it, by necessity, um, it had to be modular. And so everything breaks down into, um, two by two or one by one floor plates that all fit into one box. And then, uh, the other pieces tend to be, um, between six inches and 12 inches long and no more than four inches tall. Um, the four inches was just, it seemed like a nice kind of middling height that would allow you to see what was going on. Um, and the stairs themselves are about three inches tall, so it would provide a nice just level step up. Um, so a lot of it just came down to practicality. But the other thing is just that I really enjoy playing games with somebody else and when you have your playing space eight inches 12 inches off the table you're actually looking eye to eye to your opponent and it it to me made a much more enjoyable gaming experience you're looking at your Corvus cabal on the roof of this temple as they are diving down right but like you're also you are honoring the social contract with the other player that really reflects why you're playing the game in the first place to me so very cool very cool um and you said you know kind of in the future aqueducts and um you know other things like that are there any i guess war cry specific tools that you're Mm -hmm. looking to duplicate emulate solve or or add uh in the future 
Um, I think, you know, for instance, a walkway, um, you know, are there things like that that you're kind of looking into or exploring? Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, the aqueducts hopefully will be something that will become a walkway. Um, They're about eight inches tall. So they're about double the size of the standard. Uh, But especially for Corvus Cabal, they'd be some really sweet lookouts (laughs) to be able to dive down on your enemies. Um, The other thing that I've done is to use balsa wood. Uh, I went to Michael's and got a bunch of different kinds of balsa wood to make some platforms ringing the columns that I got, which are cake columns um, that you can get from Michael's or a cake decorating store, and made those into platforms and then started making some scratch-built bridges as well. So instead of having just this existing civilization that used to live in the building, it's something that would i would think signify to the player that there is more going on here and there is an existing civilization building on the ruins of the old one mm-hmm. give it nice. some history nice yeah Thanks. i think that's yeah it feels like an, an essentials um story note of of the terrain here is i mean part of that's age of sigmar setting right there was once mm-hmm. something it, it is no more something is uh, here now and then that's going to be no more and something's going to be built on top of that. hundred um, percent. Yeah. Which is also our own history, right? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. On the planet earth. So um, fantastic. Well, you know, obviously we've talked about the gibbering dome a lot. We're all in awe of the gibbering dome. I keep, we, you know, many people have played it on it in Adepticon or a coalescence here in town, et cetera. Um, so it's just this, this cool piece that, that keeps on giving. So um, I am going to jump to, Pavent. Actually, Pavent, I'm going to do Josh, then you. I'll just um, I'll touch on, you know, just like my uh, my painting progress, I, I kind of come up with an idea and themes and, and look at a variety of different images, aesthetics and moods to figure out, okay, what kind of battlefield or, or realm do I want to make that's different than what we currently have in terms of the Ravaged Lands or or in the starter box. And, um, and in some cases, I've like found out, okay, well, what do other people in the area have? Okay, maybe I'll try to make something different so that we can all bring something unique to the table. And um, I think I'm narrowing it down, finally, to, uh, to maybe some, some old ruins, some ancient ruins with multi-levels so that you can, you know, again, get the feel of elevation and, you know, maybe some hallways or sewers or, or bridges. Um, and, and again, it has to be modular, you know, much to Paul's point, it has to be, able, you know, be able to transport it, store it, but, you know, also having a very a, a custom unique board that's exactly the same every time can be fun, but I think it's interesting to have at least most of it be modular so that you can change the positions and the orientations and change the board up every time so you don't become used to a particular pattern of play on the same boards. And um, and I and I and one of the other ideas I was having is, is trying to make it... Um, more Asian or or a unique sort of architectural theme that we don't really see a lot in the in the current uh, model range, and so I'm trying to think of ideas and ways to do that. You know, perhaps uh, to kind of move from there. But I'll, I'll probably start ending up using uh, some styrofoam and, and wood cardboard or a thin card, and uh, also you know um, the foam core or foam board is is another nice structure for some of that and, and make it stone like. In structure, but have some unique architectural elements. But I've got to iron that out and maybe do some sketching. Nice, nice. Um, when you talked about trying to solve some of these problems in elevation, or you do something differently. What are some of your main concerns? How are you doing height different? And and what are some of the things you've feel feel like you've solved for that? 
Yeah, so not really solving per se, but maybe approaching it from a different perspective. Um, I, I like the fact that, you know, we have in the starter box, for example, we have some floors that are three inches above the surface that add a bit of elevation. But, um, but it all feels very open, you know. So I think one of the things that I kind of liked about um, you know, Necromunda or Mordheim is you have all these, these really cramped structural elements and lots of elevation. So I think coming up with a board where you have maybe hallways, but you also have hallways going across, you know, you think an overpass in a busy city, for example, you've got paths going under and above and around, and then having stairs or vines and other elements to climb up, you know, some ruined walls, or perhaps even some arcane teleportation devices that you can randomly place, you know, is a unique you know, wandering uh, structure or, or danger in the particular ruin, you know, just to add some different ways to have line of sight blocking terrain, but maybe have two or three levels that you have to navigate, but make it simple enough that it doesn't feel like, oh, okay, my my legions of Nagash warband that moves three inches is not going to get anywhere on this table. So you can't have that happen, right? So you got to be able to have those models or those warbands that are slower still be able to get around to do what the mission requires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think <clears throat> I I'm I'm wrestling a bit with with elevation because sometimes higher is cooler, but it also means further. Um, mm-hmm. And so if it's it if it's an optional place to go, or if it's you know uh, like if there's a central spire, it can be easy for everybody to focus there and move up. Um, but if you have a big wall in the middle that everybody has to climb over to get anywhere. Uh, then it maybe has become, uh, and it's you know six inches high. Uh, right. You know, it's just this maybe too much of an obstacle for the game to be interesting or fun. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, trying to figure out kind of how to do it differently. Um, uh, yeah. Anything else that that you really want to make sure you bring into um, a material you know that you've never used before or something that uh, feels like it's essential to make this idea work. Um, well, one of the things that, you know, kind of stepping off artistically, I've, I've always enjoyed the Art Nouveau sort of architectural elements, which pull a lot from nature. But, um, but I, you know, recently I just watched the first episode of the Dark, New Dark Crystal series, and in their, you know, mountain city or whatnot, they have these windows and doors that look very Art Nouveau, and, you know, they kind of uh, look like butterfly wings in a lot of ways. We have these kind of cellular structures, but are very organic outlines, and it's a, it's a really intriguing design idea. It would be like you know, it'd be really cool to have this Art Nouveau architectural aspect, you know, running throughout this ancient ruin. You know, maybe it was elven, maybe it was human. You know, who knows? You know, but yeah. but something that's completely different than this barbaric destruction, you know. Um, spiky structures of chaos, you know, so it would be this huge contrast in this playing environment, which I thought would be kind of fun. Very cool. Paven, you've recently taken um, a really cool terrain piece and literally made it your own. Um, Talk to us about kind of the idea behind, um, you know, using the moon shrine uh, for Warcry. Loon shrine. shrine. Sorry. What was the question? Oh yeah. The loon shrine. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, what was so, the what was the idea behind it, and and kind of how did you go about, you know, executing it? Now that now that it's done, um, yeah, you know, kind of uh, take a start to finish, and and how you feel about it. How would you would you do it differently, or or what's your next thing? 
So the my 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 kind of starting point was I really wanted to do a couple things once I bought that terrain piece. One, I, I wanted the terrain piece because it um, it goes well with my current war band. It goes well with that uh, Age of Sigmar army uh, the Gloomspite gets, and I wanted to just kind of paint a big big piece of terrain. This was a great opportunity. Um, there were two problems I wanted to solve. One was that the the piece itself isn't really great for Warcry in interactiveness, in that um, there you couldn't you, it just kind of sits there. Um, so I one way to tackle that was by adding a bunch of platforms where you can crawl up it and do different kind of jump off and tell a, like a different story on the terrain piece itself. The other was it the terrain piece felt like it had um, was very two dimensional that it really worked on kind of one plane. Um, and so I wanted to kind of break that out a little bit just for my own aesthetic taste. Um, and so the way I went about it, like after I had built those um, those platforms around the kind of a bit spiraling around the outside of the shrine was I broke one of the moons off and repositioned it so they weren't both on the same plane, but they were perpendicular to each other. Yeah. Um, and I think that helped, but it, it was certainly a lot of work and I learned a lot of lessons about sculpting with green stuff and how you should kind of construct these uh, more drastic conversions. Um, I guess my, my hot tips are never use a sculpting medium as structural integrity. You should, do your, <laughs> you should really pin everything together where you want it and then sculpt for aesthetics, not necessarily because the model, like the green stuff is holding it all together. Um, another is try to sculpt things, even though it's a fantastical world, try to make things seem like they might work. Um, I feel like that adds more like weight and kind of, um, it lets you like in, enter the world in a more meaningful way. So the, what I tried to do here was for all my platforms, I added support pieces of wood to hold them up, to give them more weight and feeling and feel like, oh, maybe this ramshackle thing will stick together rather than just have a bunch of free floating platforms kind of circling this giant moon. Um, I don't know how successful I was, but that was certainly a, some something that I when I added, I thought, oh, this looks a lot better. Yeah. Well, no, yeah. I think I think with plastic, it can be easy to just like it is weightless and to stick it on there in a way that that is easy to do because it's plastic. Um, but if you're imagining it as stone and what that would, you know, what that does to ropes or to, to wood or whatever, um, how does it actually stay on there? Um, and is it leaning or is it, you know, how, how do you show that it has weight? Um, that's definitely something that if you can, can, can add that will make it more believable and interesting for sure. Yeah. It actually crosses into, I was listening to a Vox cast, and they were talking about designing the knights and how you don't have to actually figure out how the knight would work, but you have to make it look like it might, right? All you have to do is to decrease that level of incredulity when you're looking at the model that makes it believable. Um, so I, I, I totally agree. That's 100% a fantastic tip to give to people when they're making these conversions is just make it look like it should work. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to look like it would make sense. So now that you've, uh, and you've added some stuff to that, what else have you kind of, you've 
made some platforms, et cetera, to, to make it uh, work for Warcry, and I gave you some flack, uh, a couple of those spots only a goblin can stand. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, where, where are you taking it next? Uh, do you have other ideas for kind of taking that? You can put that on a Warcry table, but like uh, creating an entire table of terrain that fits that kind of mood or, or feeling? So I got lots of ideas. I don't know where I am as far as execution on these ideas. I mean, the first step is just to get these defiled ruins painted and possibly all fungus up. So it looks like a like kind of a, a, a mushroom temple. Um, and, ho- and I think that'll fit in with the rune shrine. I might need to do more work nice. as far as constructing wood where the goblins have gone in and improved things. I'm doing air quotes. Um <laughs> After that, I, uh, my like my my mind runs wild with possibilities, but I certainly don't have a way of actually like doing them. But things that I would like to do is I mentioned the hungering plateaus earlier, and this is ostensibly where all my green skins are from, and it's um, a series of land masses that all kind of con- like run over each other and try to consume each other. Both like I think maybe literally, but also just platonically. Um, yeah, it's an, it's an plateau. Uh, and I would like to do like a board like that where there's a bunch of small plateaus that are all like kind of their uh, bestial in some sort of in some sort of aesthetic way, but they're all like kind of moving around and maybe there's ropes or bridges between them. I think that would be a cool board to do. Um, Moon Clan Lair I have on here, which is probably using the loon shrine and, and continuing on that aesthetic of kind of a dark and decrepit place with a lot of like uh, very shoddy crafted uh, structures all around. And it's probably got a lot of um, kind of levels and caves and different kind of tunnels to go down. I think that would be really cool on a, on a small board and get it really dense. Um, then of course it's uh, I would love to do a, like an order city board where you're like running through the streets or you can actually have a place that isn't, destroyed but a place that's living and thriving but still having you know enough enough uh space for gang warfare um nice. living city nice. being my most uh is the the city of order that i'm the most partial to um and the last thing on here is um i think it'd be really cool i know it's the first the probably the most difficult one is like how could you do an ideneth deepkin enclave warcry board so mm. we're like under the water but you can breathe in it um, because it's the ether sea and <laughs> probably not a lot of light. And there's probably not a lot of sound because it's kind of a, they have a whole sensory deprivation thing. Um, but like that could be really cool. I have no idea what it looks like though. Yeah. No, I, sounds... Sorry. I have a, a quick super silly idea for you. If you use black light paint, Right, so it's a completely dark board, but you're putting out the black light, and you can see trails and stuff like that. That'd be fun. Yeah, hundred percent black light board. Yeah, <laughs> or like a visible ink board. Yeah, so like, absolutely. You can't see any of it, but then you put that lemon juice on it, and then it all shows up. <laughs> right. <laughs> so then your next war band request is just to go find lemons. We can't figure out where we're going. We need lemon juice. That's gonna be one strong smelling uh, war cry board. Right. <laughs> Very cool, very cool. Well, um, I mean, I think, and and part of the fun is certainly storing some of these ideas in the back of our head until something pops in or is created where it says, "Okay, now I can do that." Um, you know, uh, 
and and it's not always you know right there for us at the moment or we're on a project and that that idea is formulating and then eventually uh you know it comes to fruition where all the pieces come into place and you can you can build it um very cool thank you for that um i am got a couple of things that i'm working on i guess i'll kind of get this one out of the way for our campaign or our event in a few weeks um i am trying to build a physical map that um we can place models on to track where we are at in the campaign map uh and that these uh, after each round they progress and they change and they move around and the the title of the event is called the plunging spires or the, the location of the event is called the plunging spires. And so there's a series of these tall tower, like rock formations that are like what's left of this continent. That's been slowly just falling into the abyss. Um, and so it's could be very simple in terms of these are just tall spikes of rock, um, with a kind of a, a flat top that you could, you know, potentially place something on, or have part of that civilization civilization still apparent. Um, at the same time, I feel like it's going to be difficult to make it look interesting as of just a bunch of spires. Um, and so I want to, well, and potentially <laughs> I'm trying to do it as like a small scale version of the map. So your model doesn't represent the actual model. Like to scale, it represents, you know, where your warband is on this map. But I wonder if <laughs> after I'm done, it could be its own Warcry table uh, where you're just playing on all of these smaller surfaces with bridges and stuff that are connecting mm-hmm. them. So there's a little bit of a double duty there where, I, but, I, and I got to figure out how to do it so that it I can do it in the time allotted, um, but so that it looks interesting and engaging as, as a, as a visual element. So, um, that's one thing. Um, the other, and so for that one, I'm primarily using foam, which I hate as I already previously mentioned, <laughs> uh, last year I created a, a, a very not high detail, like uh, castle structure for our all hollow siege. Um, and so I'm looking to reuse quite a bit of that material, um, uh, for this. So hopefully I can, make it look better than I made that stuff look. Um, for my other table, this is where I'm excited because I'm relying heavily on this War Cradle, War Cradle um, MDF uh, terrain. And it is, it's interesting because like I was saying, I like to go through sprues and not necessarily read the instructions sometimes and just see what fits. Um, with this, I did that on the first couple of pieces, of the first couple of um, uh, kits. And they actually went together really easily. Like it was easy to match up what stuff went where. Some of that is me having a little bit of knowledge of working with MDF uh, kits and working with, you know, sprues and models and stuff. So maybe I intuit a little bit more, um, but they went together really well and easily. Um, and as I was mentioning all the different kind of details that are on, on here, et cetera, the thing I'm trying to achieve is a mess of like, structures that have been built into each other you know like somebody builds a house and then someone's like well i'm gonna build mine right next to yours so that i don't have to build that that third wall because it's basically your exterior wall 
So I'm just going to build into it, right? Like nail up against yours. So you've already done some work for me. And then the next person goes in and uh, builds a roof. Uh, they, so they put a roof on it, but the other person above them is like, you know what? I'm going to knock that down a little bit so I can I can put a walkway on it or a ladder on it or something like that and more easily, you know, et cetera. So I want it to be an unpredictable amount of level variation and um, – uh, height difference. So there may be some spaces that are three inches up and some that are one inch above that or two inches above that. Um, because I want to make it hard to gauge. Like, you know, when you're playing work right now and you've got the terrain on the table, everything's a, most things are a, a estimated at a three inch elevation. Um, and so you're like, you know how to kind of measure in your mind or to kind of think, Hey, if it's two inches over there, three inches up, et cetera. I want that to be like nigh impossible on this um, and to not be able to see where all of the kind of um, platforms are so that you can't plan for every angle, right? So you can't plan for where somebody's going to sneak out of this from behind this thing and, and be in the right, you know, have enough room to get you over there. Um, and cause that's one thing that I uh, found when we were playing our game, Paul, is that I tried to set it up with some just weird angles and, and overhangs and that sort of stuff. But even at the end of the day, I couldn't, I couldn't judge all of the different approaches to a space. Yeah. And that just made for more unpredictability and not being able to plan for everything. And, um, you know, kind of at the end of the day, that last move might be one inch shy because you couldn't eyeball that, uh, that overhang well enough. Right. So kind of, kind of those things where you just might be shot, you know, uh, just your plans are, are thwarted by the terrain a little bit. Um, but I also want it to be so cool to look at that you don't care. <laughs> um, and, to your, and to your point too, like there's going to be uh, a windmill feature on it. And I want there to be platforms on the windmill to where you could take a ride on the windmill. Uh, <laughs> a model could jump on it and like take ride the ro- rotation over to another part of the terrain piece. Um, or uh, a zip line. I really want to design a zip line uh, where you can ride from, if you climb all the way to the top of that, you know, seven foot or seven inch structure, uh, you can make it down to another part of the board really fast. Uh, It may not matter for the scenario, um, but maybe it would, right? Um, uh, Maybe it's within four inches of the table edge. So you do it, but you're, you know, considered out at the next round. Um, So those are kind of some of the things that I'm looking at. The, the thing I'm tr- also trying to do is, is trying to build it all with the MDF provided. Um, I don't want to build a ton of substructures out of, of foam. Um, I, I kind of am I'm, I'm building the, a base and maybe a back out of foam or MDF. I'm not sure um, to give it that initial structure. But uh, I want to use – so I'm taking – often I'm taking the buildings and I'm um, only gluing two joins together. So that instead of one box or a rectangle, I have two uh, L shapes and I'm using them primarily as facades, right? So I'm facing them both towards the camera, as it were, so that I get more um, surface space. Um, But that means that I've got a bit of how I don't have all the structural integrity. Um, And so I'm using some of the MDF sprues 
and that's all wood material that I can use to, to kind of glue and shore up those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, it's kind of a weird construction project. I don't, I don't know where my levels are going to go all the time. Um, I'm, I've got it mocked up. If, if I'm disciplined right now, you can go to our, uh, the mortal realms, uh, YouTube channel and you can see my latest video, um, showing where I've gotten kind of like my, I've I basically built some things that I'm, uh, quote unquote sketching where they're going to be. And so I'll have a, uh, a video up for that. Uh, if I don't have it yet as of recording this, but my plan is to have it up by the time you hear this. Um, <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's my, you know, this, this is a hovel of buildings, uh, built into each other to save materials, uh, and they're all leaning up against, uh, you know, the halls of, of hammer hall or the walls of hammer hall or something to that effect. Um, and I'm excited to, to get some more work done on it. Um, so yeah. Sounds great. Um, yeah. yeah I'm so for you to get some more work done on Eric. <laughs> <laughs> Do you just want to play on it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Would the correct answer be no? I don't, like I, I feel like <laughs> the answer no. You just be like a complete jerk. <laughs> <laughs> um, so at the end of all of this, whether you are kind of new to uh, building terrain for a battlefield or for a, a war game or a, a tabletop game with miniatures, um, building miniatures, painting miniatures, um, all of these things uh, lead to more fun in our games. And the worst thing that could happen is that you try it, uh, you try to paint, you try and build, you try and convert, you try and uh, create something from scratch, and it doesn't work exactly right the first time. Um, but most often, you can try it over. Um, so, uh, uh, any tips, last tips that you guys would give for somebody um, at any stage, or maybe you could speak to a specific stage of of skill uh, and and give them encouragement for uh, reaching higher heights with the aesthetics of this game. Uh, Paven, do you have any inspiration for us? Um, with every project, try one one new thing. Anything more, you can kind of overwhelm yourself. Anything less, you might not improve. But uh, I'll usually try to try one new thing and see how it goes. Perfect. Josh. Yeah, um, I guess I would just say that, you know, we've covered a lot of topics from our own personal perspectives and what we like to do, but there are lots of resources available on the web and other places, YouTube videos around all sorts of terrain elements, painting, you got local resources, friends, you know, other gamers. So utilize your resources as best as you can and help you, you know, learn the tools that you might need to, to pursue your vision. Paul? Uh, I would say that don't let the complexity of the assembly for the terrain to put you off, right? If you just have a warband, you can use anything as terrain, um, especially because Warcry's terrain rules are so simple. It literally would allow you to just put boxes on top of each other, and it would make your it would definitely enrich your gaming experience, even if it's just bare cardboard. So. If you're not in a position to be able to build all these different kinds of things or buy the core set, all you have to do is have warbands. You can still have a great time just stacking things on top of each other and really enjoying the imagination that it allows you to have. Awesome. 
Well, thank you, gentlemen, for joining me again for talking about the aesthetics of Warcry and the hobby in general. Uh, those of you who are new or experienced, thank you for listening, and we will get back to you next time. It's time to put a muzzle on this episode. If it was a good, good dog, support the show with a positive review on iTunes, sharing it with friends, joining us for hobby discussions at themotorrealms.com forward slash discord, or leave a tip at themotorrealms.com forward slash Patreon. More content is available at themotorrealms.com and on Twitter at Dogs of Warcry.